Hello and welcome to episode two of the Retro Meta Podcast. I'm your host Ian and I'm here again with my friend Craig. Hey, hello Craig. Hi there. How you doing? Yeah, not too bad, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's been one of those weeks at work, but uh, yeah. we're off. It's the weekend and I've got the next week off, so I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm in a good spirit. Excellent. <laughs> and the sun's shining as well, so maybe, uh, maybe spring's actually beginning to uh, show its face. Yeah, <laughs> very true, yeah. That's been a long time coming this year, hasn't it? <laughs> it has, very long time coming. So this is our second episode. You know, I want to say thank you to everybody that listened to our first episode. We've had really good response to it. We've had some great feedback. Mm-hmm. You know, we've had some decent um, listening numbers to it. So, yeah, I want to say a big thank you to everyone that's supported us and listened to us. So hopefully, you know, you'll you like what we're doing and you'll you'll carry on listening to us. Sure. Yeah. Thanks very much, everyone. Yeah, it's it's it has been a good response, and I think that you know covering something niche like this. There's always the worry that it's only going to appeal to a select group of people, but I think it's um, you know we some of the comments we have had back um, seem to suggest there's a few people who maybe you know haven't watched that much mega, but they're quite interested in yeah you know, absolutely they, they sort of want to give it a chance and and sort of uh, dip the toe in, so yeah. that's quite a good uh, good thing. Yeah, it's always I always encourage people to you know check out more genres. So for our second episode, we're going to review Panzer World Gallant. We're going to look at the TV series and the OVA series. So let's get into the bit of the background. K Galleon, or Panzer World Galleon to give it its English name, is a 25-episode TV series from 1984 directed by Ryusuke Takahashi, and it was produced by Sunrise. This would be Takahashi's follow-up to his legendary Votomes TV series, and Takahashi would again team up with Noriyoshi Yama for the character designs and Kunio Okawara for the mechanical designs. Yutaka Izubuchi would also contribute to the mechanical designs as well. The music was by Turu Fuyuki, who did the music on Dugram with Takahashi. The TV series was followed up in 1986 with a three-part OVA. So a synopsis of the series. The planet asked, part of the Crescent Galaxy, a warlord named Marta seeks to control the planet through military dominance using powerful weapons known as panzers. When the royal household of Volder is attacked, the king is murdered and his queen is kidnapped. However, the brave warrior Aspeth manages to escape with the newly born Prince Geordi. 
Over the subsequent years, the two of them begin the search for a prophesized weapon that can oppose Marder's rule, the legendary Iron Giant Galliant. So it's worth mentioning before we get into the review of the TV series that I've actually seen Galliant before, and Craig, this is your first time watching it, isn't it? Yeah, it's my first viewing, yeah. Um, it's also worth pointing out at this stage as well that Geordie uh, is often referred to as Jojo throughout the series. So during the reviews, Craig and I will actually say Geordie or Jojo. But know, it's the same guy. But it's the same <laughs> guy, exactly. So now we're going to take a look at episode one of the TV series. So the episode opens with some narration showing the Crescent Galaxy and we then sort of zoom in and hone in on the planet Ast where we see a castle and a pensive looking figure. Because he's, because uh, King Volder's sort of uh, nervously awaiting the birth of his son, isn't he? Yeah. At the very beginning of the series. And then we get the birth of his son, you know, and then there's a lot of joy in, in the palace. But while this is going on and the, the kingdom of Vorder is distracted, we see an army in silhouette building up, waiting to attack, uh, which yeah. then, then attacks the kingdom. Okay, so the so the guards storm the castle and they've got these these kind of mechanical monstrosities, which are, are the, they're like a centaur-like mecha, aren't they? You know, they've, yeah. they've got like what well, looks like a knight on top. And a horse on the bottom. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. cavalry, cavalry panzers, yeah. as they're referred to. And they have like a kind of cannon on the chest that shoots an energy beam that's like devastating like all the, the nearby houses. Yeah. And they storm, using that, they break through and storm the castle. And yes, we see the uh, border soldiers fighting back uh, medieval weapons like bows and arrows and catapults against, you know, this this mechanical army that's um, mm-hmm. assaulting them. And then we see, you know, Asbeth, you know, he takes, he ends up taking uh, Felia and, and Geordie away while King Vorder stays behind with his men to try and protect the kingdom. Yeah. And, and, they, and they run off through a, a secret tunnel out to, you know, some distant sort of exit in the woods. But they mm-hmm. stu- they're soon um, ambushed by Marder soldiers there as well. Yeah, and they they have like seemingly some advisors or kind of like royal officials with them who soon get yeah. killed. They're like unnamed <laughs> characters. <laughs> unnamed characters uh, bumped off very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, Felia is taken, and Asbeth manages to to grab Jory and get away. But unfortunately, he's soon set upon by uh, one of the uh, cavalry panzers, the the sort of centaur like mecha we, we mentioned before. Yeah. Some mysterious craft appears and, and sort of shoots the panzer with a, with a sort of light beam and obliterates it. And he's just sort of left wondering, you know, what on earth just happened? He's, he's got no clue as to who his saviour was. So Asbeth then gets away with Geordi. You know, someone's sort of helped his escape. Felia's captured by the Marder soldiers. We see at the end of the battle, we see a like a siege tank roll up to the Borders castle and this figure with a very unusual helmet mm-hmm. stands on top of it and, and we get our first glimpse of Marder. And then after that, we're seeing Asbeth and Geordie wandering, yeah. um, aren't they? They you know They're on their own and they're just kind mm-hmm. of, you know, just wandering. And we get this... We get this kind of journey where it shows you like a time lapse of 12 years. Yeah. And it's revealed that Asbeth has, hasn't told Geordie of his of his heritage. No, that's He hasn't right. told him that he's, a, that he's a royal and he's that he's a prince. And instead, he, he refers to him as his grandfather. Yeah. And we get this kind of like uh, narration, because the narration is by Asbeth himself, we, we forgot to mention. That's true, yes. Yeah, he is actually telling the story of Galliant. So he's telling us how they went searching um, and sort of, and seemingly it might seem like people they were wandering, but they're actually 
they weren't wandering without purpose. They were looking for this mythical figure, the Iron Giant Giant. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, and it's this talk about the Iron Colossus that supposedly exists in the world. And, you know, there's a legend, uh, when evil rules upon the world, Gallant, the Iron Giant, manifests and cleanses the world of darkness. So, yeah. he's, you know, it's this legend that they're trying to uh, find and make true, so to speak. Yeah, and we get we get a good sense during this these scenes of, like, sort of time passing that Geordie has bonded quite significantly with Asbeth, and he is, yeah. like, a, you know, a big father figure to him. He's taught him how to sort of hunt and fish and things, and he's taught him the sword. And, you know, he's quite a sort of spirited kid. He's, like, he's very brave. Yes, We yes. get a good sense of his character. Um, and of Asbeth's, and the fact that he's, you know, it's been 12 years, but he's not given up on this quest no matter what. Yeah, and we see this, whatever it is, a 12-year time skip. Um, mm-hmm. We see Asbeth thinking, well, Geordie asks, his mum's still alive or something? And, mm-hmm. and Asbeth, he believes that Felia, you know, thinks to himself that Felia is still alive as well. Well, he doesn't actually tell him that, interestingly, does he? No, no, he does Just keep that to himself. Just something we'll get into yeah. later. He does keep that to himself. And then um, after that, we then see Marda's castle, you know, it, it cuts mm-hmm. back. Um, we see this big tag-looking fortress. And then within that, we get the reveal of Felia in some sort of stasis or yeah. container. She's like some sort of living statue, basically, isn't basically. she? She's like, and it also mentions in that same scene that um, Marda destroyed the Volder castle and he built a new one in the ruins. That's right. So he's like, he's not inhabiting the castle that the Volders had. He's actually that kind of made his own, making a sort of statement of his dominance, I guess. And then from that, um, it, we then sort of venture into the, or the camera ventures into the castle. We see all the inhabitants of Arst being put to work and they're working in this mysterious factory, which uh, they're building things of a dark purpose. You know, we're not completely revealed yeah. what it is, but, you know, there's, he's, you know, it's actively chunking away doing something and we see we start to see some mecha being assembled as well in, in yeah. some sort of factory true we should also mention that there's a lot of superstition surrounding Marta because he came out of nowhere with these sort of fantastic weapons that's right yeah and people think that he's like wielding some sort of dark magic which to to the viewer you know we we kind of get the implication that it's technology but to them it's yes. like it's like something supernatural does very much give that that kind of impression once we see that, then we get the introduction of Chururu, this young girl. She's out playing in the forest with a guardian or carer, mm-hmm. um, and then is attacked by um, Marda's soldiers, and then is rescued by Geordie and Asbeth. And that, in this scene, we get a good sense of like Geordie as a character. Yes, probably for the first time, because uh, we get to see the fact that he's you no, know, he's not afraid of Marda's men. You know, he takes them on single-handedly, and I mean, Asbeth joins the fight later. Yeah, but Geordie's quite. You know, he, he sort of bravely takes them on when he, he's got a pretty good chance of getting killed just to save this young girl. He, he doesn't know this girl, but he's, you know, he's sort of jumped to a rescue sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. He's willing to sort of, he's willing to get himself in a serious, to put <laughs> yeah. himself in arm's way yeah. for a right away, which which is a good indication of the sort of character he is. And we find out that uh, she lives at a place called White Valley. And so she, she needs to get back there. So they sort of escort her back to White Valley, which is pretty much where... The, just before they get there is where the episode ends, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, so we see them walk up to this big fortified entrance or front mm-hmm. of something. We don't know what it is, but it's the front of something. And then and then the episode fades out um, into mm-hmm. the end thing. So that's basically the first episode. You know, I think as a first episode, I think it, I think it does quite a good job. I, I quite like the way it actually starts to build a lot of the mystery. It does, very much so. And it is real mystery, you know. 
I think Marder's appearance is quite, especially to all the other character designs, is very mm-hmm. odd. He's very different looking character. Yes. You know, immediately you, it kind of shows you that there's something different about him, and that's mm-hmm. maybe why he's, you know, all of Marder's stuff is different. He's got mm-hmm. Mecha. He's got this sort of iron fortress you know it's a very different world yes with a kind of industrial sort of factory in it yeah which is something they clearly don't don't sort of have the technology to make stuff in that way also you know what we see as well is this very clear fantasy element to galleon as well yeah uh, vorder's army you know they have no mecha they use traditional we said swords bows arrows catapults yeah do you know there's there's a lot of foreshadowing in this first episode because of the fact that technology will play a big part in the series yes that that kind of technology versus primitive weapons is is a big is a big part of of the series in general but also like you know, you mentioned that Marder's obviously quite different and this stuff has to have come from somewhere. Yeah. And obviously the series gets to that. But throughout the episode, you can see planets in the sky above planet yeah. Arst. Yeah. And the, a lot of the sort of scenes are framed by these planets. We quite often see in distant shots these planets hanging in the sky. Yeah. And to me, that seems like a good bit of foreshadowing of, of giving you a bit of an idea that the series will be focused on other worlds in future. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the way the intro, the very first scene, the way it zooms through the, the galaxy um, mm-hmm. to Arst, and it talks about fifth planet of the, the Crescent Galaxy or the solar system or whatever it is um, being asked, you know, it, it, it kind of already is talking about this wider setting yeah. that Arst is a part of. And then, of course, this mysterious light that rescues Asbeth and Geordie as well. You know, it's just some mm-hmm. flashing lights. We don't get any idea of what it is, but it just suddenly came to his rescue. At the exact same time that he needed it, yeah. Which yeah, is... exactly. Um, and had firepower that was well, equivalent or superior to the mechanical military that Marda has Marder that was chasing just, them yeah. down. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, well, obviously in this world, Marder isn't the only one that has this weapons capability. Yeah, true, yeah. Um, and I think the pacing of the episode is well handled as well. You know, we get just enough exposition and introduction of Alder's Kingdom Yes. to care about its downfall at the beginning, because we only really get um, a couple of minutes of the kingdom being sort of peaceful and safe, like probably yes. two minutes of that. Yeah. You know, the, the news about Geordie's birth is rung out throughout the kingdom and everyone starts to celebrate and stuff, and then immediately Marder's soldiers turn up. Yeah. And so there's probably about half of that first episode uh, where they're sort of fleeing and fighting in the castle and Ophelia's uh, taken and Geordie are taken by Asbeth. You get enough of a sense of them as characters and to, yes. to care about what's happening. And Asbeth's pretty well established as a character here um, as well. You know, yeah. he's, he's clearly the one that Volder trusts. Yes, he's absolutely. Sort of, yeah. he's, he's probably not only a knight, but also some sort of advisor to him, no doubt. And he kind of trusts him enough to sort of trust him with his his queen, his wife, and his son. Yeah, I think that sort of well establishes the, those uh, characters and you know the status quo before the invasion. Yeah, because they could have started the show with Asbeth and Jody on the run. You could have done it that way and then showed you in flashbacks what the kingdom was like. Yeah. And there's probably a lot of other shows that would have taken that approach, but I don't think it would have been quite as effective as this. No, no, I I, I agree. I, I completely agree. I think it's a very effective way of building and introducing the story. Because mm. the other thing, quite interestingly, like uh, what we talked about with Zambot 3, doesn't actually introduce the title Mecha in the first episode. <laughs> that was episode. my next point. <laughs> that was my exact next point that I've got written down. Yeah, because um, it's late in episode two that we actually see Galliant. Yeah. It's like the kind of final few minutes. So really, episode three is your, your proper introduction to Galliant as a mega. Yes. So like Zambot 3, it drip feeds that stuff in. 
Yeah. You know, although there's fantastic elements introduced in episode one, it doesn't explain them too heavily. No. In fact, we, really barely explains them at all, I feel. Yeah, exactly, yeah. I mean, we get a sense of, you know, the, you know they're obviously of some mysterious origin, but we don't know why. Yes. So once we get to uh, the time that Galleon's introduced, I do feel that it's doing it in the right way. You know, we're getting enough of the characters and the stuff and all the stuff to do with the story before it does... What some other shows would do, which was like Mega Overload in the first episode. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because we get one very, very brief mention of Galleon in that kind of legend that Asbeth, you know, narrates over, and that's it. You know, mm-hmm. we've got no idea of what it is, what it looks like. You know, the only Mecha we see are the the cavalry Panzers, and then the Sentry Panzers. You know, we get a brief mm-hmm. shot of those guarding Marder's fortress. So that's it. So actually, in in many respects, uh, there's a very small Mecha element to this the start of this mecha show yeah <laughs> you know? definitely yeah i think mean, i think that's definitely a good thing you know it's kind of um when it is like <laughs> for want of a better phrase kind of like mecha porn in episode one yeah. you know, it's like <laughs> lots of really detailed shots of that and it's mainly that and there's not a lot of character stuff yeah you know you need to start off the show in the right way and make people care about the world characters that inhabit it you know yeah, and I think it's very interesting, you know, with Zambot 3, which, as we just said, didn't do it, um, and this show. Because when you look at some shows, um, and Victory Gundam brings to mind, mm-hmm. it deliberately does the, the sort of first four episodes in the wrong order to crash in the Victory Gundam into episode one. Mm-hmm. Really, episode one of that series is episode four. Yeah. You know, and it, and it forces the mecha in, and, you know, these early shows... You know they don't. They actually do take their time. Yeah. Um. And I, you know, and it's it's very interesting. It, this first episode of Galleon really, really just sows a lot of really interesting seeds. It very much does. There's there's quite a lot of setup, but it's all necessary. Yeah, it's all absolutely necessary. Yeah. So yeah, I I think this is a really good first episode. Actually, I think mm. it's it's a really interesting premise. You know, there's there's yeah. a, there's a lot going on. There's a, as I said, a lot of seed sown. Again, I think coming sort of soon off the back of Dunbine, I still think it's still probably quite fresh. It's still not really something that's been done that kind of world setting. Mm. I think this is a great first episode. You know, this is a kind of Definitely, I think this is like yeah. an eight out of ten first episode mm-hmm. for me well strangely enough that's the exact same rating that I've I've uh, given it as well um, is out of 10 I think it's just solid it does everything it needs to do it doesn't yeah. spend too much time on any one particular thing it just rattles along at a nice pace and you get enough of a sense yeah. of the characters in the world but best of all it just hints at those mysteries that are to be explained uh, much later you know yeah absolutely yeah. and it just made us want to watch the second episode you know pretty much straight away so yeah yeah, yeah completely agree So with episode two, once Jojo and Asbeth have reached White Valley, we start to see how Panzer's world actually begins to develop and the melding of the fantasy mm-hmm. and mecha and sci-fi uh, definitely, builds yeah. to develop the world and continue the story. I mean, there's some definite, um, very sort of big examples of the sort of mystical element of the Galleon earlier on. We should talk a little bit about the discovery of Galleon in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. Because they keep referring to once... Asbeth and Jojo and Deltas are talking, you know, they keep referring to the Iron Giant and that, you know, Asbeth mm-hmm. has been searching for it for seven years and is it a myth or is it something real? Um, yeah. Jutaru seems to have sort of definite ideas about that. Yeah, that's right, because she's, she's um, telling Jody that it's in a cave, uh, or at least she knows where the cave is, where it supposedly is. 
and uh, in order to get to it, you need to go through this sort of this kind of passageway full of these creatures called cracks. Yeah, that's the thing that Gallant is really good at is you know it has all these sort of weird and wonderful monsters and sort of like wildlife that's that are described and often referred to by name. And the world building is really good in that regard. You know, it has lots of little things like that in it that it doesn't need. It yeah. gives it a real sense of the world that the characters inhabit. And then once they get into the chamber where Galleon is, and it's wrapped around in that sort of dragon-like creature, um, mm-hmm. you know, you're suddenly in this very high-tech room with Galleon in it. Mm-hmm. Again, it just blends that sci-fi and mecha uh, fantasy stuff really, really well. Definitely, yeah. It's interesting to think that, you know, there's there's not, like, huge numbers of sort of anime shows that do that. Yeah, there's quite a few um, Western cartoons and books and things that blend fantasy and mm. sci-fi together. Think of like cartoons that people grew up with in the 80s, like Masters of the Universe and Thundercats yes. and stuff, yeah. as magic and robots and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, Not necessarily like sort of mecha in the, in the sort of Japanese sense, but yeah, it does seem to be a more popular uh, concept blending at least to the mecha, sorry, at least the uh, sci-fi and the fantasy parts together yeah, in the West. Yeah, absolutely. The, the fantasy works, but they have kind of very, very definitive sci-fi elements in them. Mm-hmm. You probably see um, sci-fi and fantasy blend together in Japanese culture more often in games, really. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Like the Final Fantasy series and stuff like that. But uh, but anyway, getting back to uh, to Galliant, when they discover Galliant, there's, there's quite a strange scene occurs that isn't really referred to and explained later on. We see this this sort of mysterious figure that's like bathed in light when Jordy like um, when Jordy discovers Galliant. And it seems to sort of almost possess him somehow. Yes, absolutely. And the the ramp the Galleon opens and he gets in and Asbeth tries to stop him because he's kind of like a bit wondering what the hell's going on and he's probably a bit afraid of, you know, what's going to happen. He doesn't necessarily know, you know, what to expect. So yeah. he tries to stop him but he gets knocked back and Jordy actually sends him flying across the room like he has some sort of supernatural strength. Yeah, he's like, and it's, it is almost like he has this kind of supernatural power um, mm-hmm. that he uses but... He only uses it that one time throughout the whole series, That's which, right. which is a bit bit unusual. Yeah, and he gets into the cockpit of Galleon, and he almost seems like his eyes are glazed over, like he's in mm. a sort of zombie-like state. Mm. And somebody's almost like telling him what to do. Because mm, he kind of comes around, and he's almost unsure mm. how he got there once he realises he's in the cockpit. So it's and he's like, in a battle, yeah. Yeah, and he's almost been in this trance, how he's entered Galleon. So, uh, yeah, that bit, like I say, it's unexplained. It's... um. It's quite an interesting way of... It's a great scene, actually, um, of, of mm-hmm. how it's portrayed. But, yeah, it's something that's left um, unexplained throughout the series. Although the uh, the sort of mysterious figure that's bathed in light is explained, and we find out more about that, and we'll get into that later, we can probably come back to that and sort of mm. you know explain it to listeners who haven't necessarily seen the series how it doesn't really make good on that. Yeah. But, yeah, it, it, is, it is a curious introduction. And Marta's forces obviously attack White Valley... And uh, now that Jordy's in Galliant, he has to defend it for the first time. But like you say, he's in that trance and he kind of comes to and realises he's in the midst of a battle, doesn't he? You know, there's a battle and Galliant is victorious. And then from there, we start to see, in episode three, interestingly, we then get to see Marda. And again, building on Marda's story, we see him in this hydration tank thing floating, yeah. sort of moving him through the air. So... Uh, mm-hmm starts to set it's like well he's different why is why is he in this tank um mm-hmm. you know because he's got a mask on and everything and it's, it's that's right it's, you know it's difficult to sort of understand why he's doing that and again i don't think it's quite explained why he's well that's in that tank. a really good point i'm glad you brought that up because that's in my notes as well in light of 
Mars Origins, which we'll get to later, maybe it's because of that, but at the same time, it doesn't come out and say it. No. So it, maybe it is a case of like the, the few continuity issues here, things that they meant to explain later on, yeah, but possibly didn't kind of uh, get around, get around to, it. to it. No. <laughs> and it's funny because the writing is really good in other regards, and like the kind of mythology aspect, as we've discussed, is really well done. Yeah. Um, but it seems strange that they would kind of, you know, not explain it something quite important. Because yeah. let's be clear, um, it's not like one or two scenes where Marder's in this thing. It's in loads of episodes. Yeah. Because yeah. quite often when High Shout that is Lieutenant, uh, one of his kind of Royal Guard uh, knights comes to speak to him, or uh, Rodan or one of the other sort of like, um, you know, one of the other Marder's guards. Um, he's quite often floating in this yeah, thing. Yeah. And they're speaking to him through it while he's sort of naked and he's suspended in this water tank. So it seems pretty damn important. Yeah, and it's a key, it's a key part of Marder and his survival. But mm. it's yeah, it's he must really obviously clean. need it to survive. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> so it, it just seems very strange that they wouldn't, um, you know, put a finer point on it and say this is why. Yeah, yeah, that's that's very true. As the story develops and this world creates, there's lots of bits that carry on we start to see Hilmica helping out Jojo um, mm-hmm. and you see the lights and again they're not sort of fully explained it continues to sow those seeds it's appearing but you don't know why it's appearing yeah. and, and Hilmica's character is kind of there but you don't really know who she is but there's exactly, something mysterious yeah. about her definitely and you you, you get the uh, sense that um, you know that when we eventually see that this sort of vehicle that's covered in lights which, which kind of looks like a bit like a sort of UFO like a flying yeah. saucer sort of thing yeah. really. we, we realise that that's her vehicle like yeah. it is like something she can call on and that's what saved um, Asbeth in the first episode yeah that's right so we get that link that she intervened to like to uh, to sort of help him and uh, we start to get a sense of like you know that there is something very unusual about her and she's not just an ordinary human absolutely and I think episode 4 I think is where that world building sort of takes another step and I think we start to ultimately what we would know and Marder's but you know we start to see actually what is really the truly the start of Marder's story and Mm -hmm. and where the story how it progresses and where it gets to towards the end of the series so this is where Jojo and Hilmika end up in the anti-gravity valley Um, Mm -hmm. yeah there's obviously something strange going on definitely you know and and there's something that warrants sort of further investigation yeah, that's the, also the episode where uh, Windu was introduced as well, the, the sort that's of thief. Right. And, uh, you know, because he knows a lot, because he, he, through him we find out about the Valley Without Gravity and, you know, all this, all the sort of things about it. The two of them make further discoveries about it, uh, you know, about in the actually end up having to go in there and and sort of uh, end up fighting Mardis forces. But it's it's quite a good introduction to his character you know it's it's a good episode that because it yeah. tells you everything you need to know about his character yeah straight away it's kind of it just kind of sets him out doesn't it because he's he's always he immediately starts flirting with um hilmaker and yes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's like a sort of uh, something that you know that goes on throughout the series, the series. he's always sort of he's always trying to sort of get closer <laughs> to her <laughs> which he's having none of it but I think what's quite interesting with the those two episodes with the anti-gravity valley is that this technology, it's not asked or it's not the asked that we're introduced to um, yeah. really at the start of the series. The, you know, this exactly. is something, it's very, very high tech. There's all these other high tech weapons, but it's mm-hmm. it's not something that feels native 
Um, exactly to yeah. it as well so again it, it it creates this kind of like well there's this alien influence in in the world exactly and the thing is as, as we mentioned in the episode one review the arse that we're used to has for the most part while it does have some sort of slightly advanced technology it's quite medieval yes so something that can change the entire gravity of like a, you know a whole sort of valley is is pretty out there and it's it's weird to the characters that we're, we're introduced to. it's weird to the heroes uh, they don't quite understand it until, you know, further investigation. They, they find out about the device that's controlling it and yeah. kind of learn a little bit about this, the little sort of like fortress thing that's there. So interestingly where that gets to, and we then start to see the first appearance of the Alliance a few episodes after that, which then actually starts to broaden Hilmica and you actually yeah. see that she is an alien. Um, mm-hmm. And she's part of quite this literally, sort of, yeah. Quite literally, yeah. And she's part <laughs> of this sort of higher race of people, and they're almost like the ge- uh, galaxy police, aren't they? Yeah, you they're know, like sort it. of. They refer to them as inspectors, and they they have all these rules about uh, not intervening yeah. in a certain planet's uh, affairs. They they're sort of meant to kind of observe and record things, aren't they? Really, but they're yeah. not really supposed to do something that would change the kind of outcome of fate, I guess. Yeah. But, I mean, ultimately, they have the whereabouts to do that, which we'll, we'll come on to. Mm. Um, and it's interesting, I think, at this point, I don't think they it's revealed that they know who Marder is, but they quite no. obviously know who he is. So, of course, the um, the Alliance know who Marder is, but they don't reveal that until we know a little bit more about Marder himself. Yeah, and it's quite interesting that Hilmika ends up on trial with her own people because right, she yeah. started to she has interfered too much, um, mm-hmm. you know, and broken the rules of the alliance and the inspectors, um, and she ends up escaping and heading back to us because she can see that sort of no action from them is going to be worse for yeah. the present galaxy. Exactly. I mean, one of the major things that she does is that she uses the sort of uh, vehicle thing that we've been talking about, the ship, to like to fire and like actually intervene in a battle. Yeah. And that seems to be the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. You know, the yeah, the that's the seems to be what puts her on trial is she actually engaged in some form of warfare and defended them. Yeah, because Windu doesn't know about her alien origins at this point, and he's like, well, how come you can use this sort of technology you've got like now? <laughs> When you said you couldn't before, and he's like, well, I can only really use it once. I shouldn't have done it then. Yeah. And he's like, oh, right, okay. So you just do it when, when it sort of suits you. And he's like, it's not as, it's not as cut and dry as that. It's that. Like, no. And I think that's quite, I think that whole aspect of it, and and she, you keep going back to the Alliance and Hilmika and um, her boyfriend, Roosevelt. Yeah, Roosevelt. You know, that, that story. And, and it's, you know, it's an integral bit until the point where, towards the end that you know the alliance feels they they have to get involved that's right yeah things have gone way too far by that point yeah and i think at that point for me that's where the story starts to get really interesting about episode nine i think Mm -hmm. up until that point it's it's kind of done a bit of world building and the characters and there's some interesting stuff going on but it's it plays out quite straightforward but then with episode nine where you get the um assault uh, upgrade to Galleon. I think there that's the story right, yeah. really, really kicks into high gear. Because there's a point um, where there's a couple of episodes, quite a few episodes in a row, maybe three or four, where it's, the episodes seem to follow a similar structure yes, of um, the drive Mardis forces away quite early in the episode. Then there's a bit of character stuff and a bit of dialogue, and then they come back yeah. to attack again. And you know that the episode will end on another battle or something. Yeah. And it follows that same cycle of them being driven off early in the episode again and doing some more character stuff and getting into another battle. 
But when, as you say, around that point that um, Galleon gets upgraded, and by that point the heroes know a little bit about Himmelka's, about Himmelka's nature, yeah. and it starts to kick into high gear then, I sort of feel. It starts to get a lot more intriguing story-wise. Yeah, and then I think you have some really good good, good episodes. Episode 11, I think, is a real, really high one, when um, the fight with Lambert... But then, interestingly, mm-hmm. halfway through the series in episode twelve, with uh, the appearance of Don Slazen, and he mm-hmm. actually then really, you, you you know, get a bit of an exposition dump from him. But you, you start to understand a bit what really is going on now. And you know, he he talks about you know he was one of Marder's generals. Was, yeah, and, he was. You know, really and defective. he was suspicious of what was going on because it all seemed too perfect or things are happening that were unexplained yeah and everything you know and then he went and investigated himself and then he followed up on rumors because it's quite interesting how the sort of rumors or legends yeah are sort of kicking around and that's right i love that scene actually him. it's really well done it's the way it's revealed it's the way yeah. like martyr's origins are revealed yeah it's the fact that it's like a sort of two-tier scene because while Don Slarsen is talking about what he found out about Marta, you get this scene where Marta is telling High Shaltat yeah. himself, like, because he doesn't know where he's from. Yeah. So you get you get this interesting scene that's going between the two characters, and they're both talking about the same thing. I think that's a really good reveal, actually. Yeah, I think it's good because I quite like the way as well. You know, we talked about in the first episode that Marta, his appearance seems different from mm. all the other characters in um, Panzer World Galleon. But mm-hmm. when he's on the spacecraft, yeah. on Marder's crash spacecraft, he sees all the other people, and they, they all have that same odd-shaped head. You yeah, know, that's and right, that, yeah. And the fact that they're not people from Arst, um, you mm-hmm. know, and the explanation then that he's some sort of alien, that they've crashed on this ship that was sort of split up over four pieces and... Mm-hmm. You know, and that's and then you start to and then you piece together the the tower at the centre of the um, anti gravity valley. You know, all, all of a sudden, yeah. a load of stuff suddenly just clicks into place. It does. It starts a lot of it starts to make sense. You're quite right. There's a scene where uh, Marder like actually visits the site of the crash. Yeah. And he's talking. He's sort of talking about his dead comrades, and you see the sort of uh, remains of like mm. people with similar sort of like uh, suits on. So like seems like he's the only one who survived the exile. Because yes. he was exiled from his uh, his home planet. Yeah. And obviously people were exiled with him, I guess, people who allied with him. Yeah. Uh, and they've they've kind of suffered and, and died, but he's, he's survived. Because one of the things that isn't explained, but one of the things that did occur to me when watching that scene, is that it says he was exiled, but obviously he was exiled with other people. Mm-hmm. And I sometimes wonder if, was it a group thing? Um, mm. and he's, he's like a rebellion type like thing. a rebellion type thing you know and it's like as the only survivor he's like well I'm going to pick up this you know this crusade and, and crusade yeah. and carry it on in the name of all these people that sort of perished after the mm. exile yeah that's an interesting point actually because um, while we get a lot of insight into what he hopes to achieve and uh, you know all his, his kind of like grand plan as we said earlier on that part is kind of left unexplored I kind of wish it, it, it maybe at least had one sort of flashback of something to indicate yeah. a little bit about his colleagues who died. Yeah. A little bit about his motivations there, possibly. I mean, we know a lot about his motivations in terms of what he wants to achieve, but maybe... Because he okay. seems to, like... That scene, to me, seems to indicate that he thought a lot about these people who came with him. Yes. Because he's, like, paying his respects almost, isn't he? Yeah, absolutely. And he's quite a cold-hearted sort of figure, so for those people to be important to him, yeah. I think there's more of a story there, possibly. I think so, and, and again, is it 
is he cold-hearted and determined because he's doing this for all his fallen comrades mm. as well? And you're absolutely right. I think there's another key bit of story there. While he was exiled, how they crashed, who these people were, what their original mm. their original motives were as well. I think there is, a, again, a bit of an, an untapped or unexplained plot thread there. Yeah, I think there definitely could have been a, a much higher episode count for this show because there's a lot of little things like that which, well, seem little, when, you, but when you, the more you think about them, the more they could lead to quite a lot of extra story and more kind of uh, stuff that could have been put in there. Yeah, absolutely. Once we've had this big reveal, interestingly, this is where we start to see the tide shift from Marder having the upper hand to it going back to the inhabit the arsed inhabitants, because mm-hmm. at this point Geordie's been revealed as the son of King Vorder, you know, mm-hmm. and he's the prince, and and then we have Don Slazen turn up with his army that saves the day in episode eleven. And then we mm-hmm. get another army turn up, you know, all these people that were aligned with Marda who are now rebelling against them. Yeah. Um, you know, and then Geordie sort of heads off to the to the city, goes off to get his mum. And then we, we take the action to, because a lot of it's been really focused around White Valley. Um, That's right, yeah. Around, a lot of the it? action is set there, yeah. And now, and now we actually see the action sort of start to happen in um, Marda's um, sort of city around his fortress. Yeah. The other thing as well that around that time that plays quite interestingly, um, again sort of really builds on the fantasy element is the old lady, the the prophet or the soothsayer, or whatever. That's she right. Is. Yes, because she she has like a sort of a prophecy about the stars, doesn't she? Yeah. That she tells Asbeth, and Asbeth, um, you know, wholeheartedly believes in it. What is the red star called? Mithras. That's right, I Mithras. Yeah. 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 And it's like this, and the appearance of that star and another one disappearing signifies one person's death and another person's victory or upper hand. That starts, again, a run of a, a sort of arc that runs through a few episodes. Um, mm-hmm. Because you see um, the story in, I think, a few episodes from her first appearance. She, you see her reappear and say something, yeah. sort of, you know, repeat the prophecy or build on the prophecy. Yeah, she kind of reinforces, reinforces it. Reinforces it, absolutely. And, and Asbeth keeps on seeing things that mm. reinforce his belief in it as well. And that then gets us to like, episode 16, where it ends on a very foreboding note, and you know, Asbeth mm. sort of is talking, and it ends. And then two episodes later, we get episode 18, Asbeth's end. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What what were we talking about last episode with the yeah, spoiler episode titles? Absolutely, you know. <laughs> there are loads of them in this show. Yeah, they, there's they, absolutely they, loads of them that spoil something really yeah. significant. And you just think, like, why? I mean, the thing is, I can think of a million and one better episode titles than that. Yeah. You know, <laughs> there's there's so many things he could allude to, like, about the stars or about the fulfillment of the prophecy yeah. uh, or something like that. You don't have to just say Asbeth's end. <laughs> Wait, come on. It's, you know, and, you know, exactly, you know, we talked about Nick's episode previews and the titles in Zambot 3, and this is exactly, you know, seven years later, um, mm-hmm. absolutely nothing's changed. You know, it just yeah. It just you still broadcast. do find it today, as we said last episode. Yeah. But but the but it's very specific in this. I've yeah. seen a lot of series which hint at stuff, and you yeah. can kind of guess even from that. But with this one, just literally just coming out and saying it, it's like oh man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it had already hinted at it a little bit because of the fact yeah. that you know, like I think in the, is it in the prior episode that you get the sense that Asma thinks that the star predicts his death. Yes, but I don't yeah, know if it actually absolutely. comes out and says it necessarily. No, no. But then next episode title, there you go. Yeah, there you go. It's confirmed. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I mean, episode 18 is a really interesting episode because, again, building on Marda as a character, um, you know, Marda, in the, in the build-up to this, this next assault on, on White Valley, um, you know, he's actually in one of those siege tanks himself and he's actually having to go to the battle. And then you see Marda and Asbeth face off on top of the tank. Um, mm-hmm. And Asbeth gets the better of Marda. You know, Marda is actually yeah. a very, you know, against a, a warrior like Asbeth. Um, mm, Marda's quite, the warrior. Yeah, Marda's quite a weak character. Yeah, you know, he is. In terms yeah. of strength or whatever. He really, really doesn't uh, sort of uh, do real well and basically pretty much retreats. Yeah. Get, well, he gets saved by Hal. Saved by Hal. Yeah, is exactly. nice, doesn't he? It's only because uh, he gets into the vehicle with him. Yeah. That he manages to escape with his life. I mean, you do get the very real sense that had that went on longer, Asbeth would have just killed yeah, him there and then. Yeah, just killed him there and then. Absolutely, and that would have been it. And you and you understand at this point that Marder's power comes from the fact that he's an alien, and mm-hmm. you know he's from this sort of sort of race of higher intelligence, and he knows all this stuff that's buried on on Arst, and he's able to exploit it. Where, yeah. Where and he's the only one with the knowledge to exploit it. You know, and mm-hmm. it isn't because his only real adversary or equal on on uh, that level is Hilmaker. You know, yeah. if, if these if these exactly. sort of primitive people hadn't had Hilmaker's assistance, you could have seen that they would have just been they destroyed. wouldn't have done anywhere yeah. near as well as they've done. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, it, it is as cunning in his technology that uh, that has, has gotten them as far as it has really. So um, just to finish on um, Asbeth's death typically again for a sunrise or a 70s 80s mecha show is that he gets vaporized mm. <laughs> you see yeah. him, you see him disappear and burn away you know it's you know it wouldn't be a an early uh, 80s mecha show without someone getting vaporized or <laughs> absolutely um and it, it's funny you know regarding Asbeth's death it's not it's like the polar opposite of uh you know the last show we discussed and there's not that much uh, sort of like main characters, you know, Gasbeth's the only central main mm. main character yeah. who dies like in a sort of dramatic fashion. You know, there's a lot of the other characters. It's like, um, you know, they they do kind of survive to the end. They are pretty much all survive to the end, I think, don't they? I, yeah, I, mean, I think Rodan's the only other one that that dies, but we'll we'll come to that. So episode nineteen and twenty is where Marder starts to use the anti gravity weapon. So it's kind of hinted mm-hmm. at, built up, but now we actually see it in action. Yeah, and through in episode so, twenty is where we get the big actually the kind of big reveal for Marder, don't we? Mm-hmm. That's right, yeah. There's a scene where he's, he tells Geordie everything and lays out everything that he... All his kind of machinations and his plans are, are kind of told to him. And this is where we get this whole thing about the history of Arst, you know, and, mm-hmm. and why these weapons were buried a thousand years ago. There was this very, very high technology race that lived on Arst, mm-hmm. and they had these terrible weapons, and they had terrible wars... Um, yeah, and they aban- they buried them and abandoned Arst. That's um, right. They basically crazy. just got to a point where they were horrified by their own, by their own sort of creations and everything they'd yeah. done. So they just decided that they were going to just bury them on this planet, head into outer space, find a new planet to inhabit, and start again, really, and build yeah. a new civilization, which became uh, a planet known as Landplate. Am I saying that right? That's right, <laughs> Landplate. Yeah, and then Marder was then exiled from Landplate, you know, and and he thinks this world is you know it's hinted at more in it's sort of developed on more through the sort of latter episodes of the series that you know they've created this perfect world and everything's very perfect and no one there's no war but there's nothing that drives the people on yeah. you know they just live in this perfect non 
there's no conflict yeah. to drive people to. No. Ins- and he believes that conflict inspires people and he makes them yeah. stronger, and it dr- and it drives progress. Yeah. And but when you see the uh, the sort of land plantians, they're they're really meek. They're like yeah. they're like so meek that they're that they're like sort of zombie like. Yeah. No, they've got they've got almost no emotion about them. I mean, there's a no. scene where one of them is dying, and he just regards it as if it's like, I don't know, it's like it's, it doesn't affect him in any no. way. He's interested in the method of the guy's death, and he's like he's all because they're quite scholarly, aren't they? They always record everything and they report on everything and they yeah. they note things down. So he's interested in what's happening, but there's no emotion in him. He's not. No. bothered by the guy's death he's just reacting to it like oh this is interesting sort of thing yeah and Marda uses this hyperspace transport device and he leaves Ars and goes back to Lamplate and mm-hmm. you know starts causing chaos really and because Jojo right, and everyone yeah. else goes with him um, and there's the battle carries on on Lamplate you know and, and, and this is what Marda wants you know this is um, yeah, he you know, creates the awakening you as want, he calls that's it that's right he wants the chaos and the sort of the sort of brutality of war to yeah. To wake people up from the sort of slumber that they're in. Sort of energise them again. And you see them start to sort of, as you say, very meekly, but they start to pick up guns, you know, and it's like sort of survival instinct that's slowly beginning to kick to in kick again. In. You know, yeah. having been suppressed maybe for the last 20,000 years. Yeah, they start to, to become capable of warfare again. Yeah. And, and he, he does say at one point they've awakened exactly like I said that they would. That's kind of the culmination of everything he's tried to achieve in the series. Yeah. And and episode twenty is when actually you you realise that Panzerworld uh, Galleon is actually Marder's story. It's all mm. about it's all his story of how he got exiled to Arst, and mm. then has been working on how he can then go back from yeah. Arst, back to Lamplate and then re you know and say reinvigorate the Crescent Galaxy. Um, yeah, exactly. And, yeah, and essentially you've got Jojo who is the hero of the piece. You know, mm-hmm. he's the king's son and he leads the rebellion and everything else. But He has a sort is, of hero's journey, if you like. Yeah, but his story is kind of almost secondary um, mm. to Marder's story because it's Marder that's really the, the central figure. And, and Hilmiker and Absolutely, the Alliance yeah. are, again, they're just the secondary bit. You know, they're the other force that is trying to stop yeah, Marder right, yeah, from it's... completing his objective. And the, the thing is about this sort of final few episodes, they do have a great deal of tension uh, yeah. About them because of the fact that not only is um, the hyperspace device causing loads of chaos on Arst, and there's a massive fight between Marder's men and the White Valley rebels who've also been transported to um, to outer space with them all, but there's the uh, the inspectors, the sort of council that governs the inspectors, are also sending this device yeah. called the Eraser yeah. to like kind of wipe out everything yeah. as a failsafe mechanism. Yeah. And there's only a couple of hours before that destroys like everything as as they know it. Yeah. So there's like a kind of countdown. Yeah. Like in the last couple of episodes, episodes, and you're always aware that it's ticking by. And I really like it because I think I think it's like episode 23 or there's a couple of episodes from the end when the council make the decision to use the eraser um, mm-hmm. because they talk about the first navigation, which is when the people from Ast left Ast and created mm-hmm. uh, land plate. You know, because yeah. they use that hyperspace transport device, and then they, and then it's like, you know, they've st- they've held back for too long, and it's like, no, we've we've now mm-hmm. got to intervene. And they, yeah, exactly. They, they the authorized time frame the, this call. You know, they authorized the eraser, and I love that last scene where you just see those shapes. It's very mm. mysterious, and I think you know, it is Takahashi is great at that sort of thing. 
you know, that creating that mystery because there is that really good mystery that builds all the way through with this Definitely. stuff. It, it just there's little yeah. hints it explains a bit. There's little hints it explains a bit more, and then you're left with it this. Does next keep thing. a lot of it, yeah, close to its chest. And uh, but interestingly, the uh, the council themselves don't even know exactly what the power of the eraser is. They know no. it's like a weapon, yeah, and they, they're pretty sure it's going to be some sort of cataclysmic doomsday device, yeah. Well, Woosbin is looking through all the records and he can't find anything about it. And he, no. he finally does eventually discover exactly what it will do and just how sort of terrifying it is. Yeah. But it's kind of like, you know, at the sort of zero hour when things are about to go south. But I like the fact that it kind of, there's this thing that the Alliance, they're this very high civilization. Um, mm. But there's even this stuff that exists in the Crescent Galaxy that that's sort of predates them. And predates everything mm. else. It's you know I love I love the sense that it's this really really ancient yes. weapon um, that no Definitely, one knows much yeah. about, and and the way you see it with all the objects just sort of slowly zooming through zooming through space, space. heading towards Lamplate, and then it does give it a very ominous feel, doesn't yeah. it, towards the end of that episode when you know it's heading towards them, especially since they don't know exactly what what they're in for at that point. No, exactly. And then at the very end, we know when all the objects are around, then it executes right at the um, end of the series. Now, that brings us on to the end point of the series. So I think all the way through, you've seen this um, mix of fantasy and science fiction. And then there's the Mecca, which, you know, has mm-hmm. been buried on the planet. I think where it gets to at the end of the series, for me, is a bit of a disappointing end because I don't think it really resolves Marder's story. No. Because it doesn't really. George is at the point of defeating him because there's several, mainly sort of through the second half of the series, there's several points where Geordie and uh, Marder get come face to face. Yeah. And Geordie's never in quite a position to actually stop Marder because he's no. about. Or It gets yeah. to this point where he can actually defeat him and he doesn't. And Marder just admits defeat and then a beam of light just takes him away. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he kind of goes back on his beliefs and ideals. Yeah, really, absolutely. He? Yeah. You know, he's been so completely determined 100% to, like, uh, to achieve this, and he's brought about such, like, devastation, yeah. and, like, you know, he's, like, sort of messed with, like, time and space and everything, yeah. like, bringing planets closer to each other and just creating this huge chaos and kind of bringing a super weapon down on everybody. Yeah. And, and then, finally, he just kind of comes to this sort of realisation that, I mean, <laughs> how, how would you best describe that scene for people who haven't seen the, uh, the series? It's tough to describe exactly... How he comes to that sort of decision? Yeah, he just kind of—it's just this kind of realization, isn't it? And and then he just disappears in a beam of light, and you get mm. high um, shout at saying, you know, he can't believe it. What now? Yeah, and he's like, what yeah. now? And I can't believe because he's he's such a he's such a dedicated uh, character, you know. He's yeah. like he's quite a proud warrior, but he's like he's really dedicated to Mara, like being his servant. Yeah. And he follows everything that Marvis Marta says throughout the series and he's kinda of left hanging at the end. He's like, Well what do I what do I do with me? Life now, where where will I go? Who will I follow? And his character is very much um not brought to any resolution at the end. No. You wonder what's gonna become of him, whether he's gonna find somebody else to serve, whether he's just gonna live out the rest of his days kind of wondering what, what happened to his Yeah, because it's completely because <laughs> he says, um you know, I think one of his final lines in the series, he goes, um he says, My you know, you're not one to give up. You know, yeah, he does, and he, and I think he says that he'll follow him on. So, sort of hints that there was more to happen. Mm. Um, they wrapped it up. You know, as far as I can tell, I've looked through a load of books and everything. And as far as I can tell, uh, Galleon isn't a series that was cancelled. You know, mm. it, it ran its it's ran its length. It's cost. Um, but 
it does always feel to me that there should have been more to it. Some, yeah, some of I it agree. feels like a 50 episode series or so, or a 39 mm. episode series condensed There's into There's definitely enough concepts there for yeah. a 50 episode series easily. Um, you know, all the things we've talked about before, Geordie's mysterious powers in episode two, mm-hmm. you know, Marder's background, what is exile... Um, and then this mm-hmm. ending, there's lots of stuff that are kind of, I think we've mentioned three, you know, there's there's lots of loose ends in the series yeah, that is, just yeah. don't get resolved at all by the end. Yeah, and the the, the fact that, like, as we've, as we've sort of uh, mentioned, you know, that High Shalkat is, like, so disappointed that Marta would give up, and it's, yeah. it is almost like, it's it's very strange of behaviour for him because of the fact he's been so determined throughout the, the show. I almost thought there was going to be something else. But, but no, he just it just kind of uh, stopped there with his with his character. And I was quite surprised by that. Yeah, because you know you don't really see Geordie and Hilmerker and everyone. They just get back on the Alliance's spacecraft and head back to Arst. And mm-hmm. you know you you end up with the narrator saying you know the planet rises and falls. This was a rise; it will fall again. Mm. Um, History repeats itself, itself. something, and the the galaxy goes through the same series of rises and falls. Yeah, like. Because we talked about that in the opening narration, didn't we? That it, it says that, and it it frames it, yes. the opening and ending, like two bookends. And they bring that, that concept back in that OVA. Yeah. The uh, the, the final OVA, which is the kind of alternate yeah. retell, they, they reinforce that again. And it's and it's weird. It just feels like there should have been more. There should have been more room mm. to explain stuff. It does. Yeah. And I think for how good the story, especially from, I'd say, episode 9 through to to about episode 24 and it's mm-hmm. so good through there that the final episode's a real letdown and, and another thing that again gives me this feeling that there should have been a bit more space in Galleon mm-hmm. is the rebellion that happens in episode 21 when Rodan, right. Bilson and Prost yes they come that's a really good point because it comes out of nowhere and it's dealt with in five minutes because yeah, my shell attack comes to Marder's rescue again vaporises Rodan and that's it and Bilson yeah. and Protz go back to help him murder. Yeah, exactly, yeah. It, that's it. That is the rebellion, and that feels like it should have had a couple of episodes to, to deal with, really. If there'd been a couple of episodes where, you know, it showed some of Rodan's doubts, and Protz and the other the other yeah. characters, like, sort of, you know, supporting what he was saying and basically saying, yeah, we'll, we'll hatch this plan to take him down. Yeah, absolutely. That wouldn't have come so out of nowhere, but it's just like he just, get, he just comes to this realisation that he's going to defect. Yeah. And he's going to try his best to crush Marder. And then comes this, this scene where they attack him in his chamber thing that we discussed earlier yeah. on. While he's kind of naked and seemingly defenceless in his chamber, <laughs> we think, well, we'll take this time to to attack him. But yeah. it doesn't work on the plan, Yeah, I mean, he's got all those soldiers behind him. Hell. He's done all the work. He's imprisoned High. He's killed High's guards. He's got all those soldiers behind him. He could have just shot him and destroyed that mm. chamber. And that would have been it. But... You know, it comes. I say it just comes out of nowhere and is dealt with very, very quickly. And that's why mm. I get this feeling that it was written as a fifty-episode series, but then mm-hmm. condensed down to half its length. Yeah. You know, there's there's quite it's, a few uh, bits for it that that suggest or make it feel like that at least. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that there's just a lot of loose ends, yeah. like you said, and things that could have been expanded upon mm. that don't necessarily aren't necessarily a flaw. No. But could have been expanded upon. As well as things that definitely did need to be expanded upon. They yeah. kind of, like, hurt it a little bit. Mm. But but what's there is great, though. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, what's there is really, really good in terms of the world building, the characters, the overall story and everything yeah. is excellent. But it's just these little 
niggly things that kind of hurted a little bit for me. Yeah, and I, and I agree. I don't think ultimately they take anything away from the story, but there's things there mm. that I think should have been expanded upon, or they needed to be tied up, really, to really sort of make the series take that sort of step further in greatness, really. Yeah, definitely, yeah. I think when you look at a lot of Takahashi's other series, they seem a lot more tight. Yes. You know, they're more tightly plotted. They explore almost every aspect of the mythology. All the ones that I've seen, yeah. you know, they all have something that, with each kind of uh, new episode, it, there's always more expansion, and, and sometimes you get more than you anticipated. Yeah. Uh, in terms of filling in the gaps in the mythology yeah. and that sort of thing. Absolutely, because th- this show's length is quite unusual in the period... Mm. Um, that it was uh, created because if you yes. look at the, I mean the only other 26 episode series I can think of is Giant Gorg but you look at everything else you know Doogroom was 71 episodes you know all the Gundam series Votomes Laisner mm-hmm. all 48 49 50 episodes you know stuff like um, Vancouver and all that was typically mm. the high 30s three core sort of series as well so sure. um, you know it's a relatively short series in that period i think you know i think there's like most speeder i think it's only 20 something episodes. that's right 20 25 or 26 or you know there's a few yeah. other short episodes in there but they, they are the exception rather than the, the rule during that yeah. that period mm. you know definitely yeah so um yeah it does feel and like i say for all if you looked at dugram and votomes and the world building that goes on and that they're definitely you know and how yeah. takahashi really does a a great job of building it there's all the all the elements in there and and what's good is really good but yeah it kind of like doesn't feel like there's enough room for him to mm-hmm. to really yeah, exactly. uh, develop it it'd be interesting to to learn more about the production history of the show yeah i mean there's not a lot in english i mean i'm sure that a lot of the japanese books will have we'll a lot more information a bit more yeah but um certainly it does feel like certain elements of it must have been dialed back a little bit or changed yeah yeah, kind of unceremoniously, or they thought, right, we don't have enough time to explore this, unfortunately. Let's uh, cut this part out, or, or yeah. sort of sandwich this bit in a little bit earlier. They yeah. don't need, like, the rebellion thing. I completely agree with you there, Craig. So we should talk a little bit about uh, characters. We'll, we'll start with uh, Jory, the protagonist. I mean, I think that Geordie's a really likable protagonist. Mm. You know, mega shows do get a bad rap for having kind of angsty, moody protagonists, yeah, and it's not yeah. often, it's not always the case, you know. And there's there's tons of shows that don't. Well, some I mean, some of them do, but there's definitely a lot that don't. I mean, Geordie's he's very brave, he's capable, and yeah. quite smart. In certain it's, in certain situations, he can be a little bit impulsive, but he is still a teenager. Yes. He races off to save his mum yeah. in that episode, which yeah. is probably unwise given the circumstances. But you can understand his motivations for doing it. Yeah. And he doesn't come off as like a little brat or anything like that. No, you know, no. He's, you can understand his character in his yeah, motivations. Yeah, he's got a lot like of that. pride, isn't he? He believes quite highly in honor as yes, well. Yes, absolutely. That's the word I was looking for. He's got a lot of honor, hasn't he? You know, mm-hmm. and got morals and everything else. And he looks up to his elders. You know, he respects Asbeth. He respects Diltus. Um, mm. Looks up to those people around him. And the way he's portrayed in the first half of the series, when he gets told that he's now. The pre, you know, he's the heir to the uh, kingdom and everything. Mm-hmm. You know, the way he takes it on that on board, and you know, and afterwards, Asbeth is sort of asking for forgiveness for not telling him for all these years and everything. You know, yeah. the way he's portrayed to deal with that, I think, is fantastic, and I think that's a really yeah. good. You know, and you see a lot of growth as he kind of starts to 
he takes on that role as a leader. Responsibility, and yeah. Responsibility, because he shows bits in the anti-gravity scenes. You know, in those episodes, mm-hmm. he shows these sort of sparks of leadership. Yeah, definitely. And then yeah. a bit with sort of encouragement from Hill McCurr and Asbeth in there. And then he actually just kind of takes it on. And, and after Asbeth's death, mm. you know, he takes the he overall has, lead, doesn't he? He does, yeah. I mean, he has a brief moment where he's where, of doubt where he's not really sure he can continue on without Asbeth. But after he gets over that quite quickly and, and steals himself and says, yeah. no, this is what we've got to do. And this is exactly what Asbeth yeah. uh, would want me to do. And, you know, he, he's so willing to put his life on the line for people, yeah. even if he doesn't know them very well, which which was illustrated early on. The first episode, he helps Churu straight yes. off the bat, yeah. despite uh, risking um, being killed himself. So that gets us on neatly to talk about Asbeth as well. He's very brave, you know, he's yeah. loyal, and he's really determined. I mean, he spends years yeah. looking for something that might not even exist. Yeah. Without wavering in doubt. No. He's absolutely 100% certain he's going to find Galliant. And I think that builds on, if you look at the sort of fantasy element of Galliant and the whole bit with him bringing it up. I mean, again, it's something that you you see quite a lot in fantasy films from, mm-hmm. you know, from the 50s and 60s, you know, that thing. And I think that builds on the fantasy element really, really well. Um, and it he, does, and, he's, yeah. and him, he's a really good sort of fantasy warrior character because he never, he never pilots a mech or picks up a gun. He only ever fights with a sword. Yeah. I like the way that he portrays kind of like the end of an era. Almost, yes, exactly. For, for yeah. the last people, you know, with his death and Geordie, he carries it on with Galliant and, you know, That's and, right, and as yeah. the rest of the last people get the other weapons that they've dug up out of the ground, you know, it's, it's like a sort of passing of the ages or passing of the yeah. generations. Yeah, kind of like passing of the torch. Yeah, yeah. I know what you mean because he he is like the last of it's almost he's almost like a dying breed, isn't he? Yes. You know, like a sort yeah, of, absolutely. Because the series is so focused on the superior technology being the sort of driving force of what's yeah. going to you know win yeah. the war, and he's somebody you know still still sort of believes in the old ways of fighting, I guess. Yeah, and that does make him quite an interesting character. Yeah, and he never he never really shows any weakness no. either, does he? You know, he's just very determined, strong in his beliefs. But totally believes in Jordy 100%. Mm. And even and there's a point, I think, where he pretty, he's pretty certain that he's going to die, where he, he's quite comfortable leaving everything in Jordy's hands, and he knows he's going to sort of be victorious. And Himmelgare as well. I mean, at the beginning yeah. of the series, she's really mysterious. She's an yeah. enigma. And we don't know anything about her other than there's something that's no. possibly supernatural about it. It turns out that she's of alien origin as well. She clearly knows a lot more than the other heroes about what's going on. Yeah. And obviously that that sort of leads into all the stuff about Marder and the uh, council and everything like that. Yeah, she's a very strong female character. Yeah, she's um she's a really really strong character and quite nice to see a sort of really serious headstrong character uh, in mm-hmm. a show like this. Definitely, yeah. She can be um, a little bit manipulative at times, and uh, she certainly uses her feminine charms and her sexuality to to get some of the male characters to do things. <laughs> yeah, she's very very devious. And she'll play the damsel in distress or, you know, she'll mm. turn on the charm and always in particularly in uh, manipulating Windu. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if she wants him to do something, she'll lay on the charm. He falls for it every time. He um, does. <laughs> uh, she gets what she wants and then she kind of drops him like a hot stone afterwards. So, And he never <laughs> learns either, does he? He never learns. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, there's some quite funny interactions between the two. And then with Roosbin as well, you know, it feels like throughout, you know, the second half of the series that she's just kind of stringing along, you know, he's obviously besotted mm. with her, but she just, yeah, strings him along and, you know, and he does everything for her, let, repeatedly lets her go. Because she's got very much a strong moral compass as well, Hilmica. Very much so, yeah. I mean, the the fact that she basically abandons her own people 
ends up getting put on trial for for what in their eyes are like crimes against the sort of council, if you like. But you know, to her, she's just sort of you know trying to save the people she cares about and save this planet and its people and their newfound friends. Yeah, and she knows what the right thing is to do. And mm. she does that, as you say, despite going against her people and what it means for her as part of her, you know, her own culture. Mm-hmm. And we've got Windu as well. Yeah. You know, we've talked about briefly. I mean, he's just like a happy-go-lucky sort of character, isn't he? And he's really sarcastic and he's got yeah. a quite bright sense of humour. And Jordy doesn't really want anything to do with him at first, no. but the two, the two of them soon become good friends. I think it's Jordy's sense of what's right and he, he can't really lie with a thief. No, no, that's right, yeah. <laughs> Windu provides the comic relief, really, for, he definitely for this does, series, yeah. doesn't he? And, and I remember this when I first saw it, because I remember watching Galleon and Windu and his action, and I thought, do you know what? He's just vanilla from Votomes. Um, mm. And he's actually the same voice actor. Yeah, I was going to mention that, because, uh, yeah, he, he does have quite a distinctive voice. Yeah, uh, but his actions and his behaviour and everything, he's, he is just literally vanilla lifted from Votomes and then... Put yeah. into um, Galleon, you know. Yeah, he is very much, but uh, he is very similar. I mean, the, the the way he's sort of always like sort of taking things, not taking things seriously, and sort of like yeah. you know, cracking jokes and things. Because it's that high pitchness when yeah. he's got when he's going when on he's complaining he about high, something. He hits those high notes, doesn't he? Yeah, you know? he does. it's very distinctive. Because yeah. I remember the, the very first episode I, I saw of it, you know, years ago when I first watched Galleon, I was like, oh, that. I've heard I've heard that voice before, you know. Yeah. You, you go on A N N and and look it up, and it's like, ah, oh, yes, he was he was vanilla. That's exactly who he is. <laughs> so, uh, whenever he, especially whenever he's complaining about something, like that yeah. scene where he's uh, he's complaining about the fact that Himmelka won't use the weapon again, and he's like, yeah. oh well, you can, you know, you can use that only when it suits you, can you? And like, yeah. oh, this this is convenient. Yeah. <laughs> and he just always has that he hits those eye notes where he trails off, and he's. And he's getting really annoyed. Um, but yeah, he is. But he is a, a good character, and like you say, although there are a lot of similarities with Vanilla, I do, I do like his character. Yeah, and I think, like I say, he does provide some good comic relief to the series. Mm. And you know, the bits where he's always trying to hit on Hilmika and she sort of brushes <laughs> him off. You know, it's very entertaining, <laughs> even after the fifth or sixth time. You know, it's it's good. Yeah, there's always at the scene wrong time. Where they're in the Sorry, there's a really good scene where they're in the cockpit of uh, of the sort of uh, ship when he's he's sort of trying it on. That's really funny. <laughs> I'm not, not spoiling for viewers because that is quite quite a good one. But it's, it's always kind of at the wrong time as well. You, you know, he always yeah. does it at the the wrong opportunity. Hi, Shelter. You know, he's um, Marder's sort of main lieutenant. His character, yeah. I find sometimes I find him quite annoying because he's got this. Mm. He's such a sense of pride. Yeah, um, he's like and duty considers. Yeah, he looks down on on uh, other people, doesn't he? Yeah. Really, you know, he's. Especially martyrs of the warriors, like because yeah. he's one of the royal guard, yeah. he basically considers the royal guard to be the elite, and that you know he really clashes uh, with Rodan because Rodan's beliefs are quite different to his. Yeah, because Rodan's a goon, um, he's yeah. a typical brute soldier, isn't he? Mm. Whereas High Shelter is a, you know, he's a bit more intelligent, and you know he's Marder's chosen one. So there's definitely a, yeah. you know, a split. He's got a bit more them. cunning about. Yeah. Absolutely. He's more sort of thinking warrior yes. than, than just kind of yes. a guy you send in to clean up. Because he's very forthright. But interestingly, um, High Shelter's character, I think his character is a very, very common character. Sort of early, yes. mid-80s sunrise shows. Because if you look at... Yeah, the kind of prideful warrior. Yeah, Shot Weapon from Dunbine, Gavlet Gable from Elgheim, Mashamir from Double Zeta. Mm-hmm. They're always yeah. doing it for the pride and the sense of duty mm-hmm. and... And everything, you know, with these very high morals and very high standards. 
Um, mm-hmm. You know, he's he's another one. Um, and interestingly, as well for high shout out, um, blue hair drawn exactly like mm-hmm. Chirico as well. I would say that um, sometimes when sometimes when he's off model, he kind of looks a bit more like Chirico than when he's on model. Yeah, <laughs> but you can't you can't get away from the fact that a lot of the yeah. a lot of the time he looks like Chirico. Um, he does, yeah. And, totally you know, it's the same character designer, so it's hardly a, su- yeah. a surprise. Exactly, yeah. And we've also got Lambert as well, yeah. who I think is probably one of the most interesting secondary characters mm. in the series. It is core, he's a very good person, and, you know, soon after his introduction in the series, he's only been in, like, you know, two episodes or something. We can already yeah. see him struggling with it, with his kind of with his moral side and against Marta's way of doing things. Yeah. I mean, because, like, Jordy has a strong sense of honour, the two of them kind of connect a little bit because of that. Absolutely, because when he's introduced, he's kind of, you know, he's this silent character presented as this, if it goes wrong, I'll send Lambert in. Yeah, he's like Geordie. a kind of almost like a last resort. Isn't last he? Like resort, a, yeah. And um, again, he has this strong sense of honour. You know, this is a theme that runs out through all the characters through um, mm-hmm. Galleon. And again, this is where it builds on what you see as a traditional knights in armour fantasy world, you know. And mm-hmm. everything was more about armour because it was all fighting with swords and fighting one-on-one mm-hmm. and face-to-face and everything. And all these people in Arst who have either are in the white value of joined Marder's side, you know, they've come from that fighting with sort of primitive mm. weapons and, and the sense of honour. And, and that, even though they now got into robots, um, mm-hmm. they, there's still that sense of honour. And when yeah, Lambert that... and Geordie face off, you know, there's that, we're going to fight like we did in the old days. Exactly, yeah. That's that same sort of like a sense of honour and the kind mm. of, the code, yes. if you like, still yes. applies. Much like Asbeth, he too could be viewed as a kind of, you know, a bit of a relic. Yes. I guess, like, sort of, you know, somebody mm. who's very much of the past. Yeah. But, I mean, speaking about the whole honour thing, in episode 11, when the rest of Marta's forces are raiding the village, and Jordy fights them, and Windu calls out Lambert for being dirty. Yes. And yeah. he's taken back because he didn't realise that was the case. No, that's right. And so he's, like, really appalled by Marta's tactics. Yeah, he feels he's been used, doesn't he? Because he's, he's essentially mm. been used as a distraction. And that lack of honour and backhanded cowardice is um he doesn't sit well with him at all and that's where he no, um, ultimately re- surrenders and joins that's the, right. the he, rebels and he basically um you know he, he sort of stands down from the duel and he says that they'll finish the duel at another time yeah and johnny agrees to that being sort of you know quite honorable himself yeah. but he, he does get he does get captured and sort of spend some time in a cell but then there's a scene where he's set free by yeah. uh, johnny and chiru yeah and he basically just remains in his cell, doesn't he, while he's thinking about what to do. Yeah. And eventually joins the White Valley Rebels and becomes one of them. Yeah, because he's very yeah. quiet and he's very deep, isn't he? Yeah, he's sort of always kind of brooding and sitting thinking to himself. Yeah, and I, th- and I think he's a great secondary character as well. I think he's, mm. I think his story uh, through it, I think, sits perfectly with how the world of Galleon is built. You know, the, the mix of the fantasy and the high tech. Um, yeah you know he sits perfectly in that transition somewhere between the two exactly yeah i mean you can see him and asbeth as kind of like you know the the sort of last gasps of that old civilization yeah absolutely yeah i think that's Mm. a a brilliant portrayal all the other characters in the show the sort of tertiary characters i think yeah i think they're just kind of there filling the gaps philia Bilson and Protz, all those guys, I think they just, mm-hmm. they're there to, yeah. to fill a gap and help move the story on where it's needed, really. Just, I think there's too much mm-hmm. we can say about them. 
So moving on to having a look at these mecha designs and the production values of Galliant, uh, we'll start with mm-hmm. the title mecha, the Galliant. I think Galliant's design to start with, I think it's quite an interesting design. I think there's, Definitely. I think there's reasonable uniqueness about its mm-hmm. design. Sure, it just has. I just love the design of the head. Yeah, I think it uh, it just looks really cool. There's a scene in one of the later episodes where there's this really well drawn moment where it sort of turns its head and its eyes light up. Yeah, and it just looks so cool in that in that sort of moment. The red color scheme and everything just yeah. makes it stand out, and the use of the shield is yes. quite cool as well. Like the the fact that it has the sort of knight like appearance. Yeah, definitely sets it apart. I mean, obviously, just the fact that you know the necks are sort of knight like, and that's the main main aspect of the series. Yes, yeah. sets the whole series apart. But certainly, I do like Galliant's design and the uh, and the sort of way it looks overall. Really, it looks quite sleek. Yes, and yeah, because the arms and you know, because he hasn't got the sort of big shoulders, and the shape of the arm and stuff is very different to what we've seen before as well. And it has a flight mode as well. So back of the success of Macross, you know, we started mm-hmm. to see a lot of transformation yeah. in record shows and everything. We saw it in um, Dunbine, and then we see you know that the uh, Galliant has a, a flight mode. Uh, which is interestingly has no weapons in flight mode. Yeah, I think is, you know, a very <laughs> yeah, interesting flaw, because um, and several times you know, Geordie gets taken out by the fact that he can't defend himself when he's being pursued That's by right, um, yeah. High Shout at. He does have a couple of crashes, doesn't he? Where he yeah. gets sort of forced to the ground. We didn't mention uh, the Galliant's uh, main weapon as well. Yeah, the sword. Which it's not really named in the series, but it but it is like a sort of what would you say like a segmented whip that transforms yeah, into a sword, sword yeah. like a chain whip. Yeah. And he kind of like, when he sort of whips it down and sort of straightens it, it seems to then kind of morph into like a sort of shod shape. Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting weapon as well, because as you say, it's it's like a chain whip and a sword. And he can mm-hmm. and he uses it both ways throughout the series. Mm-hmm. When Galliant gets its upgrade to become assault mode, um, it's only mm-hmm. then that it actually gets projectile weapons. That's it, right, it gets yeah. the cannon on his back. And this kind of four-barrel laser shotgun thing. Yeah, and then the flight mode finally gets some sort of uh, weaponry. But the bit that pops out of his leg that Windu uses, I think I feel is a bit underused mm, throughout the series. Definitely, definitely, and again, yeah. What we were talking about in the main review, where it kind of felt like it was written to have more room for this stuff. Um, yeah. It feels like there should have been more room for him to use those weapons. Yeah, there's there are that mode is very underused. I mean, there's a whole scene involved with um, Windu training to use it as well. Yeah, absolutely. Because um, there's I, like a sort of docking thing yeah. that you need to do where they need to be synchronised because like it splits into parts, doesn't it, at that yeah. point? So you get the scene where, where like Geordi's... I think is it, at that point is he he's not concentrating because he's thinking about his mother or something. That's right. It's something yeah. that it's something that's that's like a, him. Yeah. distracting him, and he makes a pig's ear of it, and he nearly takes uh, he nearly takes Windu out. out yeah. <laughs> A window then as a as one of his legendary moans at him and uh, <laughs> it's very high pitched but it's, yeah. uh, but then it's used like once maybe twice after that mm. it's a it feels yeah. very very underused so one point I do want to make with the animation is when the wheels come down on Galliant and it skates along because if you compare this directly to Armor Trooper Botones and the uh, the way the AT skates. Um, it's an identical motion, it's identical mm. animation, and the sound effect and everything, it's it's directly lifted from Armatry with both times to Galliant. Yeah, the, the way they do that sort of turn, it's like it, it's like you say, it's animated in a very similar way. The sort of the sharp turn that they, they kind of do once they're speeding along. That's right, because if you look at the, the legs and the way the legs kind of go out to the side and skate round, mm-hmm. 
it's um, it's identical motion between the two series. I think there's bits towards the end of that bit of the series where there's some brilliant brilliant scenes where they're skating through the desert. You know, yeah, there's some look. great perspective shots where yeah. you see from like kind of almost like it's not from the cockpit, but it's like sort of from almost yeah. like a camera that would be mounted on if it, if it was live action. Yeah, where it's like you see the racing forward and you get a real sense of the speed at which they travel. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, it was it was really it was really well done because you do get a sense of like just what it would be like to be in one of those things. Yeah, absolutely. The rest, you know, really for, on the Rebel side, that's the only the only Mecha. You know, all the other Mecha are Armada's Mecha. Although there is uh, Skirts. I guess he was one of Armada's horses. Yeah, he turns up with all the sort of red-painted um, mm. cavalry panzers, doesn't he? So, mm-hmm. yeah, so you could say Don Slarzen's Mecha is, is on the Rebel side, but initially it's on the Armada side. Yeah, exactly, yeah. But you do get some good scenes in the last two episodes where he's really kind of holding like a sort of defensive line and he mm. takes like loads of damage. At one point, I totally thought he was dead because he, he's like in this massive explosion, isn't he? Yeah. And then uh, the smoke clears and he's actually still sort of hanging on and he's not been blown up. But Skirts is quite that, that much of a standout design. Yeah. But I think it sort of like has a bit of a chance to shine towards the end in just how much damage it takes and just how well he does against the enemy yeah a lot of the mecha designs in this are quite generic Mm. because you have the cavalry panzers which we've talked about i quite like them i think they're quite unique looking i like the detail of like the um, fire blowing from the joints when it that's right you you always see the sort of fire kind of you know jetting from the back of the leg don't you yeah uh just as early on as the first episode you see them walking around and the that's like I think the first time you see them. You yeah, see that's that. the first time you see them. That's right, and I think that's quite cool. Then you have the artillery panzers. I love the uh, light weapons that they fire. These light mm. say, uh, light beams because or light projectiles because they fire and go into the ground and then they mm. explode from inside the ground. That's right, and kind of make the ground almost like a fault line kind of yeah. appear, and then all the earth flies up and everything like that. And I think that's quite good. And, and interestingly, from artillery point of view, one of the details I quite like for those. I think they're quite a nice design actually. That I think. You know, the colour scheme and the, the shape um, is pretty cool. But when they're changing trajectory of the weapons, they use hand-turn handles like they do on mm-hmm. traditional artillery. You know, yeah. and it, and, that, and that's what kind of brings it back to this kind of a bit of an oldie-woldy feel for some of it. Yeah, because definitely, Because yeah. it's not a button or it's not kind of computerised. Mm-hmm. They're moving handles to do it. Um, sure, yeah. You know, and I, I like that feel of it. It kind of really feels like artillery. And then you have the sentry guards, mm-hmm. you know, which have the sort of castellated top, you know. Yeah, those those are excellent. Those I thought they, they I really like the design of those because yeah. they are like, and there's those sentry robots that have the sort of castle-like head. It's it's like a bit like a castle battlements to the top of the head, and they kind of guard the iron castle. That kind of really underlines the points that they've been talking about. It goes back to that fusion of medieval and technological, which is really the core concept of the series, really. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think with those designs, I think you can really see Okawara's influence because mm-hmm. the head of the artillery panzer has the sort of cross and they have the mono eyes. So there's, oh, a, yes. there's uh-huh. a little bit of the Dom from Mobile Suit Gundam. Then I think Izabuchi's designs, you know, with High Shoutat's mm-hmm. mecha, you know, those sort of, they're a bit different. You know, you, yeah. can, you can see two clear styles within the mecha design, yeah. I think. And I mean, uh, we should also mention is that in the final episode, Galleon gets completely destroyed. Yeah. <laughs> Which seems to be like something that would happen quite often in a lot of sort of seventies and eighties shows that yeah. get taken out in the very final episode. Yeah. But it's like for people who really like robots and, you know, really enjoy that that sort of aspect of the show, I, it's a bit sort of nail biting when that yeah. happens, he just bails out. 
he jumps out, bails out, and rolls, and then it just smashes into the side of the um, of Marta's like uh, sort of craft, doesn't it? And just yeah. blows up. Yeah. And I was just like, what a disappointing end to get well, to yeah. Going, you know? yeah. And as I say, that kind of adds to that disappointment to the end of the series. You know, all the sort of... Because you would hope if it was going to go out, it would be in some sort of blaze of glory yeah. rather than Johnny just jumping out of it and willingly yeah. getting told. <laughs> <laughs> because the other thing as well um, is the uh, Twin Gal High Shelters yeah. ship as well. That's quite interesting. You don't really see that kind of twin mecha like that. Yeah, yeah they're both missing it's an arm unusual with, design. The, with the uh, cockpit kind of in the middle. Um, and one of the things that's interesting in me on that, Takahashi is heavily influenced by films. Mm-hmm. And you can see Apocalypse Now on the Cuman Jungle Votums. Arc on Votomes. And, you know, you can see a lot of influences on him. And one of the things when I th- saw that design is I always think of in um, The Empire Strikes Back, you see mm-hmm. the TIE bombers where there's two TIE oh, yeah, bombers. The twin, the twin ones, yeah. yeah. In that scene where the bomb and the asteroid. The asteroid. Stuff, look at the hand. Yeah. yeah. And when I first saw that, I immediately thought of the TIE Bomber, because it's mm. the only instance where I can really think of they've taken a singular-type craft sure. and, and sort of doubled it. Um, mm. and, I, and again, with Takahashi, you know, taking a lot of film influence, I wonder if, you know, he it's took... It's a possibility, yeah. You know, it's a possibility, I'm not so sure, but it's I say it's the only other mm. time I can think of seeing that type of design. Well, I didn't think of it at the time, as soon as you mentioned it there, I knew exactly what you were referring to, and I just thought, yeah, I can see that, you know, that that's definitely a possibility. Yeah, I think that the rest of the mecha designs, again, High Shoutat's craft and, and Lambert's thing, they're quite, as you said before, they're quite traditional sort of mm-hmm. knights. Yeah, and Lambert's design, you know, the colour scheme of his uh, mecha is sure. very much the same as um, Shaco's armoured trooper in um, Botomes, you know, the gold trim mm-hmm. on, a, on a dark blue background, on a dark blue body mm-hmm. as well. So, I mean, I think there's a lot you can see carry over from Votomes mm-hmm. into, into Galleon. Um, Definitely, yeah. There's a lot of cues through that. Yeah, and I think that, you know, for me, that's probably... Yeah, I think the Galleon we said is interesting. I quite like a lot of the designs. I don't think there's... It's a standout sort of cast mm. of mecha designs, if I'm honest. I think I think they're good. I don't think there's any bad designs in there. Maybe some of them where you can see some of where they've been lifted from or re- yeah. reused. So, talking about the animation, it's pretty smooth for the most part. I think that, you know, some of the fights are quite spectacular. Mm, I agree, yeah. There's a lot of destruction detail in this show, yeah. much like Vorms itself. Yeah. Whereas in Vorms it probably had that has some very spectacular and beautifully animated explosions with loads of debris falling. This tends to focus more on the mechanical parts, like flying everywhere. Yeah, yeah. There's loads of bits where you see the inner workings and pistons and circuits and things flying out. Yeah. And bits being torn off, like uh, robots and stuff like that. And I love the viewpoints in this show. There's there's this brilliant scene in the siege tower early on where you see the soldier from a soldier's point of view and he's racing forward down the siege tower like sort of fighting people, and it's almost like a sort of first person computer game. So yeah, the way it yeah. travels forward with like momentum with the character running. Yeah, and it looks brilliant. It's like so fluid. It reminds us of um, there's a shot in there riding Bean that's like a kind of dashboard shot. Yes, where yeah. uh, the cars traveling forwards really quickly, dodging yeah. traffic and that. And it's so fluid, it just looks beautiful. Both that that scene in the, with the siege tower is exactly like that. It's yeah. just so well done. Yeah, I love that scene. Yeah, if I'm honest, I think a lot of the animation in Votomes is quite average, um, mm-hmm. for, even for a 1983 TV series. And I think you know when when you get to 1984 and you get to the mid 80s where Galleon is, I think you can really see a st- in a lot of shows you see a step change. Or you start mm. to see like animation start to get better, 
and definitely mm. in TV series. And I think Galliant's quite a good example of that. And if you look at it from where it Bowtime's kind of finished and Galliant started, I think you can see a bit of a, a step change in the in the quality, the level of detail. Um, and all those things, you know, a bit more interest in use of perspective, mm-hmm. where the anti-gravity weapons being used, all the detail in all the bits of tree and rock that's yeah. animated. That's mm-hmm. much, much better detail than you, you kind of seen previously. Again, if you sure. look at something like Dunbine as well, at times is a very kind of average looking show. But when you get to here and you look at Elgheim as well, Elgheim has some fantastic animation in it. So, you know, some really, really good level of detail. And I, so I think, you know, Galleon as well, I think is, you know, at times is really quite nice to look at mm-hmm. when you consider it's a mid-80s TV show. Mm-hmm. There's a, there are some instances of off-model characters. Yeah. But I agree, you know, the animation is, is like superb, uh, you know, most of the time. there's It's just, uh, I think that it's more noticeable with High Shalt and him yeah. up there. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of instances where they seem to be drawn slightly differently. Yes. I think that Himmelgeist can sometimes look a lot more plain and sometimes she's drawn to be a lot more attractive. Yes. You know, she's almost, she's kind of like, not exactly like sort of mannish, but she's kind of plain looking at certain yes. points. She's, all, yeah. she's not really drawn with that much femininity. Yeah. And then there's other instances where they've really tried to make it look as, as attractive as possible. Yeah, I know. And with High Shaltat, like we mentioned, the scenes where he looks more like Churko. And there's other yeah. scenes where he looks like distinctly different. Yes. Even though he still has obviously the very obvious blue hair. Yeah. But he has like there's ones where he looks like his features are sharper. Yes. And there's scenes where his features are a lot softer. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It, the off modelling on there, I think, is quite. And I and I think that's something you see quite a bit of. You see it. Oh yeah. In photomes, it's a Gundam suffers from it quite a bit. And, I mean, there's, well it's just times. a product of the time. It, it, it obviously, is. but I don't think it's like. I don't think it's terrible, though. I mean, no. I'm not saying... No, no, no. I mean, I think on the whole, I think it's a pretty good-looking show. And it's definitely a step forward from the you know, the shows that sort of ran from sort of 81, 82, mm-hmm. 83. It's definitely a, a turning point in animation quality. Getting on to the music, the first thing for me is that opening theme. Uh, yeah. I just think it's just such a brilliant opening theme. I do as well. I love that opening theme. There's, uh, it just has um, a very haunting quality to yeah, it, I think. Yeah. it's. It's kind of, uh, it's, it's you know, once I'd heard it once, it was like instantly in my head. Yeah. And, you know, some themes take a little while to grow on you, don't they? Yeah. Whereas uh, this one, just instantly, it was, I, I just really liked it. I found myself probably watching the opening sequence more yeah. often than I would. I was just going to say that. The very first time I watched it, as soon as those opening bars start galloping along, because it's by um, a Japanese prog rock group called Eurox, mm-hmm. you know, and it is a very, very early 80s prog rocky sound mm-hmm. theme to it and then you get that sort of almost i want to say sultry but it's you know that soft mm-hmm. sort of singing that comes into it yeah, yeah it's just absolutely brilliant and you know i watch the opening theme of this every time because it's you know often i will yeah. skip it but for something as good as that i just yeah it is um, it's just really good i think the the, the animation complements that opening yeah. theme really well yeah like even the little bits of animation like that sort of a time with the beat yeah and that sort absolutely of yeah like the doodly-dum, doodly-dum yeah the lyrics also kind of do sort of relate to the show yeah which is interesting because that's not always the case i mean no. like obviously there's loads of them where they do but in this particular case there's like there's a couple of lyrics that do kind of give you not necessarily like a big kind of window into the plot, but a little bit. Yeah. It does kind of relate to the serious story. It does. I just like the way that it does have a sort of link, you know, like the, yeah. you know, your, it has the lyric about your world will soon revive, that, that sort of thing. And that seems to lead lead into the fact that, yeah. you know, 
the White Valley Rebels are going to gain a foothold and come back and yeah, or it could be Marta's sort of you know bringing Land Plate back. Yeah, it could be either of those really. Yeah. But it is focused on Jordy the opening sequence, so yeah. I guess it would be more about him trying to you know become the prince and take the take the throne back. And I think the the closing theme as well, you know, again, it has that kind of melancholic sort of feel to it. Definitely, um, yeah. And I think that sort of closes the show out because the spot music in the show is pretty good. I think, as what we said with Zambot 3, I think it uses spot music and in-series in music really well. Because a lot of the episodes in Galleon end on a cliffhanger. You know, there's a lot of, sort of cliffhangers. And I think often the music is used really well to emphasise mm that a sense of foreboding or yeah you know a triumph or something like that i think it's it generally is the music is really good um throughout the series it really is i think that um that ending scene it does have a very the ending theme sorry it does have a very similar kind of melancholic feel there's this bit in the ending where you see Marta's face and then all this kind of troops kind of like emerge yeah from his kind of face from the back to the front the animation's mainly just kind of like a tracking shot with characters appearing. Yeah. But that bit looks really cool. There's yeah. just something about the way that's kind of, just aesthetic, aesthetically, the way it looks yeah. is really nice. I agree. So I think on on the whole, I think, you know, from a production point of view, Galliant's, I think, pretty good. I think it's, you know, it's got some good mecha designs. Mm-hmm. It's got some great music and it's got some great animation. You know, it's not good perfect. Characters. It's good characters. So I think production-wise, it's really, really good. Yeah, certainly. So looking at where Galliant sits in the uh, history of mecha anime, similarly to Zambot 3 that we discussed in the last episode, Galliant sits in the middle or at the peak of uh, the real robot boom of the early 80s. If you have a look at how many shows were released, in 1981 there were seven real robot shows, in 82 there were six, in 83 there were ten, and then in 84 there were nine, and then in 85 there was five, and then you were kind of curtailed down so in 84 mm-hmm. you know it really was at that sort of peak time of real robot animation yeah. so the you know all the studios were churning out real robot shows you know it really really sure. taken off and similarly to what the super robot stuff did in the mid 70s you know zambot 3 was on that peak when there was whatever 13 shows released in two years you know if you look here there was 19 shows released over wow. a period of two years so the whole toy market merchandising thing mm. you know it was a real it was giant it was absolutely time, yeah. giant yes so it's um you know quite interesting that it's you know one of the products of that peak time so i think now we'll, we'll take a look at our ratings for panzer world galliant tv series so sure. for me it's an eight wow right strangely enough that's exactly what i would oh, really say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's an eight for me too and i think it's um it's just the the little things, the little niggly things, you know, some of the sort of stuff that's not explored yeah. that holds it back a little bit for me. Yeah, and that's exactly why I really don't give it um, a slightly higher score. One, there's just too many loose ends throughout the series that are never really ex- explored. And then the ending for me as well, it's just a bit, not really a very satisfactory sort of final conclusion mm. to Marder's story. So I think had those two things been resolved it i think it would definitely yeah. been a nine but for me it just those two things just hold it back a little bit i'm, I'm the same you know it's while they don't damage this the my enjoyment of the series overall um they are just it's just a it just holds it back that little bit yeah and uh, i kind of feel like it's it would have had a, a slightly higher rating if not for that but having said that 
I mean, it's a wholehearted recommendation for me. You know, I think definitely. Yeah, you know, if it's if you're into eighties real robot anime, then Galleon is a must see. Definitely, and I think it appeals to non mega fans as well. There's yeah. enough sort of character stuff, enough good sci fi concepts, and just general sort of uh, good story telling in it. Really. Yeah, I completely agree. And, and the world building, which we've already discussed, yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. There's loads of good stuff in there. So now we'll have a look at the uh, OVA series. So the first OVA and the second OVA, which came out in January and March uh, 1986, respectively, Crest of Earth and Crest of Heaven, are essentially a recap of the TV series. They begin by showing brief snippets of footage of episodes one and two. Yes. And they kind of condense episodes one and two into a few minutes worth of summary. Yeah. Telling you about uh, how Baldur's Kingdom was destroyed and about Marder uh, appearing with his panzers and stuff, and then then it also gets into, like, uh, the search for Galliant and White Valley, and, uh, you know, the characters turn up at White Valley yeah. and all that sort of thing. And it, it pretty much starts the actual footage off with, from episode three, I would say, around yeah, there. Yeah, You know, through both of these OVAs, typically of these kind of compilation movies, uh, where mm-hmm. you're condensing... I mean, they're only about 55 minutes each or something like that. You're, you know, you're condensing yeah. it down into about, you know, all the 25 episodes down into really about six episodes of screen time. Um, yeah. And, you know, as usual, they are very, very choppy in yes. the editing. They, they really are. It's almost jarring at times. It is. Um, it is very jarring at times. I mean, there are, there are points where if you hadn't seen the TV series it would be kind of difficult to care about some of the stuff that's happening, really, aren't yeah. I mean, you would you would be intrigued by a lot of aspects of the show, and you would think this looks like a really good show. But I think that, thinking back to, like, the Japanese home video market, of, like, in the 80s, if you didn't see something on TV, you might not necessarily have the chance to check it out if it hadn't been released on VHS. Yeah. So maybe somebody come to these compilations, it might serve the purpose of helping them see a couple of bits of footage they've missed yeah but really they're kind of defunct in the modern age aren't they you know they're not yeah. really something that's that helpful i mean but talking about what you were saying about it being jarring you know the windu's not really introduced in this over here in the first one no no he doesn't really have any sort of introduction scene the first time we see him he's getting sucked up into the saucer the kind of craft yeah the Himuka pilots and well like who's this guy if you haven't seen the tv series you wouldn't know <laughs> yeah, because like in the early on in the first OVA, you know, you, you just suddenly get Geordie fighting High Shalto. You know, it just suddenly, mm-hmm. it just happens. You know, there's yeah. kind of no build up to it. He's just suddenly fighting him. And then uh, Hilmaker's comment as well, we were right to be worried. It kind of has no context because... It has no weight and no context, yeah. It really no, doesn't because... All the stuff that's in the TV series that, you know, where it builds up the... Um, and because in the second episode we see the anti-gravity weapon and we haven't mm. we ha- and the whole anti-gravity valley bit mm-hmm. in the that covers a couple of episodes in the fir- in the tv yeah. series is completely missing so when it when you get that in the second ova mm-hmm. there's there's no context and hilmaker's comment she makes this very sort of poignant sort of yeah. foreboding comment but you're kind of like well what yeah, but what are you worried about? Because it's, yeah, exactly, it's missed yeah. so much stuff out. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's yeah. crazy I mean, yeah. obviously they couldn't, there's no other way to do it, I guess. I mean, it's it's not really a sort of fault of them trying to, because tr- they've got to 
call that footage and condense it, but it's still very, very jarring. I mean, going back to um, Windu for a second, yeah. you know, you don't really see any of his trademark humour or how sarcastic he is. No, or any, no. You don't get much of a, of like an idea of his character at all, really. No. You do, the only sort of thing you get a sense of is the fact that he's quite often sort of, you know, kind of like bigging up Geordie and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, um, that's right. He's yeah. just constantly there through everything. But you're not really sure who he is. And, and also with Himilka, when we first see her, the characters are distrustful of her because she took Churu yeah. and seemed to have kidnapped her. And later all that's resolved and they realise, you know, what happened. But in this version, she takes her, she disappears, the characters later meet up with her for what seems like no apparent reason, and then they suddenly trust her. Yeah. In the scene where they go into the mines and they discover that the panzers are being dug up, they're all on her side and they trust her, and that's really jarring going yeah, from the that's... fact that they don't know who she is to the best mates. Yeah, because <laughs> it just skips along, because like, at the beginning of this Ekinobia where uh, Jojo, he leaves on his own with Chururu, again, it's just, mm-hmm. there's no explanation why she's with him. Asbeth mm-hmm. suddenly appears on the siege tank where he dies, you know, again, talking about Hilmika, you know, where she's trusted, you know, her people and this sort of the international police or intergalaxy police, police, intergalactic police, that's the word I'm looking for. Thank you. Are you in the you galaxy know, police? <laughs> yeah. You know, like all of that is just completely removed. If you hadn't seen the TV series, you would struggle to really understand yeah. what's going on in this OVA. You'd be seriously lost off, wouldn't you, really? I mean, I really don't enjoy that many sort of recap over years of compilation movies. I think the yeah. Gundam trilogy ones are an exception because they they chose they they had a good idea of what to cut. But also, with them being a movie trilogy, they do have quite a lot of screen time. Yeah, and they actually re-edited and reanimated and loads re-animated of stuff. Some things. Yeah, because the yeah. third film is you know seventy percent new in exactly in that. So whereas yeah. this is just an so, edit of a TV series. Yeah, exactly, and that was it done right. I mean. To me, if they were going to do this, you know, if they took the movie approach, it would have been a lot better. Yeah. Uh, even if even if they had just edited the TV footage into three films instead of two, yeah, they probably would have been able to get a lot more character stuff in there. I completely agree. I think you know this OVA series is is three OVAs, but the third one is which we'll come on to is essentially a you know a, a slight retelling. Um, and it really yeah. needed that third OVA to be this to be in three parts. I, you know, I whole I yeah. wholeheartedly agree because I mean, ultimately, for all the stuff that's good in the TV series, you know, the tension, the drama, all the mystery, it's just completely missing from the OVA. It's, it's completely yeah. missing. I mean, you could argue that technically it's not even an OVA because original video animation, which it's yeah. not. No, <laughs> it's it's uh, it's you know it's footage from the TV show. Yeah. yeah. So yes, the third one's an OVA. Yeah, but, um, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, it's very odd. And the other thing as well is what I find quite interesting, and it's a bit of a sign of where it was made in or when it was made in 1986, mm-hmm. is the computer graphics for the title cards at the yes. start. Of, you know, I mean, they're horrible. Because <laughs> <laughs> the other thing as well with this, the, the um, they're commonly known as Christ of Earth and Christ of Heaven as, as the translation, mm-hmm. as the official titles. But the actual translation of the titles is actually Chapter of the Land and Chapter of the Sky. Oh, um, right. That's the actual okay. translation of the kanji. Which, uh, yeah, I didn't quite appreciate, and I was doing a, a bit of research on. So, um, but commonly right. they're, they're commonly known as you know the Crest of OVA series. Earth and Heaven. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. There isn't much more to say on that. I don't think these OVAs they maybe give you a taster, but because I don't really do all the stuff that's really good in the TV mm. series, um, I'm not sure these OVAs would necessarily make you want to see the TV series. 
Yeah, if anything, they might actually put you off what? a lot. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Yeah. I mean, um, the Crest of Heaven one. I mean, is is just very similar because, you know, it begins with a recap of the of the first Soviet year, and then it skips through another couple of episodes which are like really important to the series. Yeah, yeah. Because the episodes that it that it sort of skips through are the ones where um, Geordie uh, infiltrates uh, the Iron Castle, and then he also uh, comes face to face with Marder and his mother. Yes, for yeah. the first time. Now. To me, it's fine to skip the episode where he infiltrates the castle because that is just pretty much just like you know him action and yeah. action and sneaking past guards and Churu helping him make a distraction. Yeah. But I don't understand why they got rid of the scene where he comes face to face with Marder and discovers his mother because it's by by sort of recapping that, you're taking a lot of the drama and emotional aspects of the series away. Yeah, yeah. By just having the narrator tell you what happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's very, it's very, very odd. You know, I don't, I don't, I think it's a very poor edit job at the end of the day. Mm. I mean, a lot of the emotional impacts lost because of that. I mean, it does contain the Asbeth and Marder fight. Yes, but I'm, all, but I'm pretty sure it doesn't contain much of the foreshadowing about the uh, Star of Death, no. the Mithra's star that foretells that somebody is going to die, and then obviously Asbeth realizes that it's actually his fate to be the one to die, and because it doesn't give you that foreshadowing. You know, it's just like it doesn't really have the impact that it should. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, it's mm. I, I, yeah, like I say, I, I think it's a very, very poor substitute to the TV series. I rate these two because they're essentially, you know, they're they're really a pair. You know, I think it's like a three or a four out of, out of me. Mm. You know, yeah. I think you know, I, I couldn't really recommend this these two no. OVAs at all to anybody really. I'll be the same. I mean, Rodan as well, and his and the conspirators who turn against Marta, like. When they turn traitor, it doesn't really seem. Oh yeah, just like <laughs> you, you don't really care too much because no. you haven't really seen an allegiance to Marvel no, very much. No, I, I, I think like Rodan only had a couple of scenes anyway, so. Yeah, I know it's very, yeah, very, very. I think a very poorly executed mm. um, edit job. And I would agree. I think you know, giving it a, like a three or a four seems really low, but at the same time. If it wasn't just an edit job, I would probably actually rate it higher. Yeah. Because it's just recycled footage, I'd say like a three. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. So now we'll move on to the third OVA, Chris of Iron. This came out uh, less than five months after the second OVA in August 1986. This one was actually directed by Masahi Ikeda, who did some of the storyboards and um, was an episode director on the main TV series. He's actually the... The main director. This isn't directed by uh, Ryusuke Takahashi. Mm-hmm. The character and mecha designs. Again, the team predominantly remains the same, but Izabuchi actually did all the uh, redesign of Galliant and the redesigns for all the the other mecha within Crest of Iron. So this one actually starts off a bit different, really, Very doesn't different, it? Yeah. So uh, it it is like a sort of completely different uh, setup character-wise to the TV series. Yeah. The, my thing is that because it starts with the same narration talking about the rise and fall of, of man and how things go in endless cycles and stuff like that, yeah. is it actually reincarnation or is it not the universe? Yeah, so I can't... Because what kind of throws you is that you see Asbeth, but he's mm-hmm. Marder. Yes, you know, exactly. Um, and that's the bit that's kind of really confusing. And then you suddenly see a very a much older Geordie who's now got mm-hmm. red hair. Yeah. You see High Shoutat. And Churu, and they're all basically siblings. Yeah, and it says that they, they grew up in the same household despite having different blood, so they aren't actually related. 
but they've been, they've grown up as if they have been. I was trying to figure that same thing out as well, Craig. You know, is is this reincarnation? Is this just a retelling or a reimagining? Yeah. Is this just Ikeda's take, having been quite heavily involved in the TV just his series? Just to say what if. Yeah. Sort of, you know, do that kind of alternate universe thing. But I think that the opening narration, because it talks about the rise and fall of um, of civilizations and like how things go in cycles and stuff like that, that kind of lends it to me more that it is possibly reincarnated versions of the characters in a future generation in a different version of the Crescent Galaxy. Because interestingly, I kind of did not really want to jump to the end, but based on exactly that comment of yours, I mean, at the end, it then goes back... Once the the battle's over, you you know you see those red beams of light, and you see the the rebirth of Ast again mm. at the end. Yeah. So, so it's like the universe itself's being reborn into a new crescent galaxy. Yeah. Yeah. So it's um, it's difficult to interpret because I don't know. And again, I've 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 tried to hunt some stuff down in this, but I I can't find anything about it. But I don't know, given that. Whatever the circumstances are where Ikeda was given the opportunity to do this and direct mm-hmm. it, it was. You now I wonder whether it was just he just wanted to try and completely Different take those group. elements, yeah, and just make it his own based on. It's not yeah. like you're going to do a, a, a Galleon OVA, and he, and he was obviously given some sort of free reign mm-hmm. to rework it. But yeah, I wondered whether he was trying to redo that or just trying to make it different enough to mark it out as his work rather than Takahashi's work. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's it's lots of different scenarios. It, I'd, I'd be very interested to know how... Same here, yeah, because it, it is an intriguing like uh, concept in yeah. the fact that it doesn't really cement it. I mean, I would say that the ending, if anything, does suggest that it is like possibly like a kind of reincarnation thing. But then could it even be future generations of the same family with the same name? Possibly. You know, it, but, but then the ending kind of maybe sort of like takes you slightly away from that. But yeah, the the fact that Marder looks like Asbeth with his character design is really jarring. Yeah. Having been used to, I mean, he's not ex, he's not exactly got the same skin colour and that, but he is basically the same He is basically the same character much. design, yeah. And obviously we, we haven't really gotten too much into the plot, but the the siblings are all under Marder as, as like warriors, yeah. really. Although Himmelgo's character is quite similar in the, in the uh, OVA. She does play quite a different role. Yeah, because that's because that's new, isn't it? This bird folk who now actually appear to be the part of the main adversary. Yes, exactly. They have like they have like wings that they use to uh, to sort of fly around and you know use bows and arrows quite prominently. But yeah, it's a, it is an aspect of the of the uh, OVA that's totally new, isn't it? Yeah, because now you know you had essentially the House of Vorder versus the House of Marda in the TV mm-hmm. series. The House of Marder and Vorder is kind of the same, and and they're now fighting someone different. And Marder is still the mechanical or the mechanized army. Um, you know, yeah. still, they still have the Mecha and and all the Panzers, and the Bird Folk are, you know, the medieval type army. Mm-hmm. You know, without all the mechanization, and the UFO element from the TV series is completely removed from this as well. It is, um, yeah, because it hasn't really got the room to to fit that in. Actually, I think that would probably. No. It'd probably feel a bit cramped, wouldn't it? A lot, yeah, yeah, I agree with you. And I think that that's its downfall, really, is the fact that it is so short. Yeah. Because I think it has a really interesting concept, but it also has a lot of squandered potential. Yes. Because the idea of different versions of these characters and not the universe version of Galleon in general is a really promising one. Yes, yeah. But a lot of the plot is really threadbare, and because of the running time, there isn't really that much time to develop anything. Yeah. 
at least for my money, I mean, I, I don't know how you felt about it, but it's it. There's not that much story in it, really. No, there isn't. I think it captures a lot of the mystery and kind of foreboding that you yes. get from the TV series because mm. um, the bit at the beginning in the storm where you get the um, the thunderclap and you get the premonition mm. for High Shoutat. Um, yeah. You know, of him killing Marda. And then you mm. kind of get that creepy old man at the banquet. Yes, that's right, yeah. It creates a very uncomfortable atmosphere in that yeah, scene. Yeah, there's definitely a strong sense of foreboding in it. That's very atmospheric, you're right. I like that element of it. So I still think it does that bit of it mm-hmm. quite well. Uh, quite, I quite enjoy that. But yeah, as, as you say, it doesn't really have enough room to really develop a story. It kind of, it creates a few set pieces to just move it on to the end if it, if it had been a couple of episodes this might have actually been a really really strong OVA if it yeah, had enough I time agree. to develop yeah. all of the characters individually and you know go towards um, some sort of conclusion where you know everything was like set up nicely and it sort of and it just like all led to where it was supposed to go but I feel like there's maybe been a few too many ideas for such a short yeah. run time in this one because conversely to what we said to the if you were going to re-edit the TV series, it needed the three OVAs. It's almost a shame mm-hmm. that actually the OVA wasn't this yeah. over three 50-minute episodes, week. you know, because it could have yeah. been a really, really interesting story. Galleon doesn't turn up until 10 minutes from the end in this. Exactly, yeah. And they save, like, sort of Galleon for a kind of big sort of showdown yeah. um, between High Shalta and uh, Jordy because obviously the main real plot of this is High Shalta turning traitor. Yes, and, you know, that's really the, the only story it really has, yeah, I guess. Yeah, that's it, yeah. Although he's a bit of a grey character, you know, he, he doesn't necessarily see the suffering of people. He's not that empathetic. He's kind of like maybe even bordering on being slightly psychopathic. He doesn't really care too much about people. No. But he is good at, it, but he is good at his job. You know, he's he's a loyal sort of servant. Yeah. But you can you can see there's not some, there's something not quite right about him. Yeah. And then there's obviously the prophecy where he sees a vision of himself killing uh, Marta. Yeah. And he doesn't believe he's he's actually going to be capable of doing that. Yeah. But then as we as as things get across, you know, he does become a bit kind of chilling and seems almost slightly possessed, doesn't he? By yeah, the absolutely. Yeah. Of the the mecha that he discovers. Yes, absolutely, and and that quite tidily takes us into the, the, I think, the last 10 minutes, which, and before I start talking about this, I mean, I saw this however many, seven or eight years ago, and I kind Mm. of just, at the time, I kind of thought it was a bit average, but when I watched this again, I actually, you know, the last 10 minutes of this are absolutely Mm. fantastic. They Um, are. That that final battle between Galliant and the um, Dashin Hay you know, which I think is a fantastic design. That snake-like it is a very cool design. really, really yeah. cool. Really um, unusual. Really unusual, yeah. That final battle from when Geordie gets into Galleon and then sort of faces off against High Shouter, I, I think it's absolutely fantastic. And one of the things I really like about it is it doesn't rely on music. Mm. You know, there's very, very little music. There's a few spot music. I can't think of a better way to describe it, really. But it relies on the sound effects, there's, mm. You've just got rain and thunder in the background, and then you've just got the mechanical sounds of the mecha and the weapons. Mm-hmm. And I just think in the darkness, you know, that dark setting, and they're just facing yeah. these two really cool mecha facing off against each other. I think that final sort of eight, nine minutes or so is absolutely brilliant. Yeah, it is really cool. And I think that while I still have problems with the OVA, OVA as a whole, 
for people like me and you who really appreciate that sort of thing, it's a really damn cool scene. Yeah, because the animation's really nice in it. It is. The production values are great, which is something else I, I was going to get onto and, and say that that's the best thing about the OVA for me is the yeah. production values and the designs. Yeah. But I think there's a lot of people who, you know, maybe... I think that Galliot is a quite accessible series in general, the TV series. I think yes. Even if you're not necessarily a megahead, you'll enjoy the series. Yes, I agree. Yeah. In a, in a similar way to Escaflone, but I think that, you know, watching this OVA on its own, I don't think people would be willing to forgive like some of the sort of flaws of the of the OVA yeah. just to get seen necessarily if they're not into as as into mecha as me and you are. Yeah. Um, it it is a very flawed OVA, but that final scene is. It's really fantastic, good. yeah. It's really well animated. It's full of tension. You know, the bit where Galliant's sword splits up. Um, and for me, it goes a little bit Gundam there because I feel the bits of sword, they're like the bits, the final bits from the Gundam series. You oh, know, yeah. yeah. I've never actually, I never actually like, picked up on that, but I see what you mean, yeah. Yeah, they, they, kind, of, they kind of felt like that. You know, and when you, know, you see the sword catch the lightning and then they shatter and then they suddenly all coordinate and then all fire at the Jashin Hay, you know, and, and mm. then that defeats High Shoutat. Uh, you know, I, yeah, I just, I'm surprised I didn't pick up on that, but I guess I get exactly where you're coming from now. Having having you said that, I can can yeah, yeah I can see the two things side by side. Yeah, and, and I, to be honest, I didn't really twig that the first time years ago when I saw it. It was just this time watching it. I just because um, there's a little bit earlier on where uh, High Shoutat and Marder are, are talking, or there's a scene and something happens and you actually get the new type sound yes i did notice that one yeah yeah as well and um <laughs> and i think it was maybe that because i picked up on that sound effect and it's like oh is this you know it's picked up on that gundam new type because because that scene i think is kind of like that spiritual or sixth sense well that's it yeah type there's, thing, definitely isn't it? A super, there's a huge supernatural element to the finale i mean like there's it's just completely like blamed in the finale because it seems you know that like I say, I mean, first of all, it seems like High Shalad himself is somewhat possessed yeah. by some sort of spirit of the Mega. And then there's the bit at the very end with with all these kind of, I don't know, like, uh, I guess, like, what looks like spirits all kind of joining. Yes, yeah. And going into the sky, yeah. So, yeah, I can, I can see where you where you come from there yeah, with the I, sort of uh, new type comparison. And I, think, yeah. and I think it was that sound effect, that bit earlier on, that then put the new type bit in my head. And then when I mm. saw the, the sword bit at the end, that said, oh yeah, his new type powers are, or you know that sort of <laughs> spiritual or awakening, bit, yeah, you know spiritual bit of it. Oh, you know he's con- therefore controlling the bits of sword, like the bits from Gundam, and using them as a weapon to attack the uh, Jashin Hay. Talking about that, you know, the, the mecha designs. It's interesting how Izabuchi has redesigned the Galleon in this because Okawara did the original Galleon design mm. uh, for the TV series because I think. Galleon in the TV series, if you look at the shoulders and arms, mm. they're you know, they're more of a unique shape. But then in this OVA, the redesign, he has much more of a distinctive shoulder pad with the arm sticking out of mm. it, which is much more what you see with a Gundam design. Um, yeah. And a lot of other mecha designs. Mean, yeah. yeah, no, that... I think Galleon's design is a bit less unique for me in this. Mm. You know, it becomes a bit more of a... I don't want to say mainstream, but it's a, a bit more of a established mecha design yeah i think i see what you mean yeah mm-hmm. actually i have to say i enjoyed this second time round a lot more than i did i say my i had very mm. nondescript kind of memories from it it was 
Okay, but based on that last ten minutes, you know, I'm, I'm again, I'm edging towards like an eight. I, I really enjoyed that ending to it. I'm, I've watched that last ten minutes mm-hmm. um, twice more since <laughs> since I watched <laughs> it, just because it's that good. I think um, it might be one of those things that I might possibly enjoy a bit more in a second viewing, like yourself. But I think that um, for me, although I do think that the ending is really cool, because it takes quite a while to let's say to sort of get good, and I feel like yeah. a lot of the plot isn't too gripping until towards the end when High Shalvat starts to become a bit more sinister. Yeah. It's probably like about a six for me. Yeah. yeah so I, 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 I get like, that, yeah. Yeah, production values are great. It's still got the mystery and intrigue of Galliant. Yeah. It has some really cool designs in it, as we've uh, talked about, and it just looks really nice, and that end scene is great. Yeah. But I still have to kind of think about it as a complete as a complete work. Yeah, but you, but I totally am with you on the last ten minutes. It is a fantastic. You know, uh, I mean, I would, you know, I would say if you want to go and watch some really cool mecha action and like a really, really well executed battle, mm-hmm. you know, I would say go and watch it, watch it just for the build up to that end, to that end sequence. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah I, I, I mean, I think my original coming into this, I would have probably said it was a five or six, but I don't know. I just, I just so enjoyed that last bit of it that. You know, it's mm. it gets a recommendation to watch. You know, yeah. it's only fifty five I mean, minutes or so. I would still say it's worth. I would still say it's worth watching. Yeah, absolutely. Don't get yeah. <clears throat> and like I say, perhaps me sort of uh, feelings are, might might change with subsequent viewings. But it's certainly out of the three OVAs, it's hand head and shoulders above the others because the yeah. others are just caps, as we've talked about. At least this one actually does something quite different, and yeah. it is quite unique, and it yeah. is quite interesting. It had potential to be brilliant, and I kind of feel like it's a little bit above average, but. Yeah. But yeah, it's, yeah, it's definitely I know. worth a watch if you like the TV show. Yeah, I um, I agree because that, uh, that's kind of I'm I'm in a bit of conflict with myself because it's for the, the exact same things that we, we've talked about. You know, it's it's short and it's missing a lot, but at the same time, some of it is just so it really is so good that you yeah. know somewhere between the two. Yeah, sure. I, you know, I you know I get what you mean. I mean, there's some there's some sort of uh, OVAs and kind of short anime you just want to sort of put on to appreciate the aesthetics of the animation and i'm sure everyone has an anime like that where they just want to watch like something that's 40 50 minutes long and look at the cool visuals yeah and not have to spend a couple like a week two weeks three weeks watching 50 episodes you know yeah yeah but but it certainly it certainly scratches that itch yeah definitely yeah That's, that's a brilliant way of putting it yeah definitely so that brings us to the end of our review of gallant for our next episode, we're going to do the first of our franchise-spanning episodes where we take a look at the Macross franchise. So, for episode three, we're going to review the Macross TV series, Flashback 2012 OVA, and the Do You Remember Love movie. So, where you can find us? You can find us on Twitter, at RetroMecha. You can find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, Overcast FM, TuneIn, most podcast hosts just search for Retro Mecha Podcast. And we now have a blog for Retro Mecha Podcast as well, uh, which is www.retromechapodcast.wordpress.com. So you can find me on Twitter at, at AnimeHeadsRetro, and you can also find my blog at www.animeheadsretroworld.com. And you can find my other podcast, Retro Anime Podcast, on Twitter at RetroAnime, and again, same podcast host, SoundCloud. Stitcher, iTunes, TuneIn, Overcast, all those good places. Okay, another good discussion, Craig. Absolutely, so, uh, yeah, it's been it's been great. Cool. Really enjoyed uh, talking about yeah, with you. Yeah, so cool. 
Right, take it easy. Thanks. Bye, everybody. The opening and closing theme music to the podcast is Molten Alloy from Purple Planet Music. All other music used within the podcast is copyrighted to its respective creators.